Listening to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast for Tammy. <laughs> My name is Tom Chick, and to discuss Tammy with you, I've enlisted the help of Christian Markovsky. Uh, you can just call me Good Grip. Yeah, I can. And with a Tammy tagline, Kelly Wand. Oyster Fest. Oh. I guess Hamburger Fest. Or... Keep digging. Uh, let's see. So, uh, should, I I had one of these rare opportunities to uh, try to watch a movie this past week that I, I, with every passing minute, I hated it more and more. Like from the first, literally in the first sixty seconds, I was like, "Oh, screw you, movie!" Every passing minute, I loathed it even more. I made it fifteen minutes into this movie. Before just saying, I can't do this. I'm done. It, it came out on video on demand recently. I'd been told to see it. I was looking forward to it. I love some of the cast. Made it 15 minutes into it. It was excruciating. The only uh, sort of redeeming factor of that is I then I then called Dingus because when you do a video on demand thing, you've got it. It lets you watch it in, in installments over a certain period of time. So I was able to call Dingus in and say, oh, Dingus, I want you to see uh, – Let's see how far you can make it in this movie. And I loved those same first 15 minutes knowing that di- – watching them with Dingus and subjecting him <laughs> to the same pain. It was this amazing – it was this kind of like this pent-up release of schadenfreude as I, as I forced Dingus to experience some of those same 15 minutes. Um, so, Kelly Wand, what this is coming around to is I would like you to watch the movie They Came Together starring Paul Rudd and Amy Poehler. <sighs> At, at least fifteen minutes of it. Can can you do that for us, Kelly? Wong? Wait. So it's like admissions, but different girl. Oh, it makes admissions look like Citizen Kane. Wait. You watched just the first fifteen minutes, and I ended up going a little bit deeper. I just was aghast at how awful it was. And uh, Dingus has only seen the first fifteen minutes, but I I made it uh, most of the way through. Yeah, it's, it's like a reality show pressure challenge. Like who can get as far as they can into this movie. Yeah, and I definitely won. Uh, another thing that happened, too, I don't know where I got this from. Did I tell you this? Uh, so there's there's some great people in the cast. Kelly Wan, for instance, let me ask you, how do you feel about, say, um, Ellie Kemper? <laughs> See, maybe you should watch this. Movie. Oh, how much is she in it? And how much is how do you feel? Oh, she's throughout it. They get a lot of – it's got way more Kemper than, say, Bridesmaids or uh, 21 Jump Street. Yeah, she's barely ever in anything. She's in a lot of they came together. Uh, it's also got. How do you feel about Kobe Smulders? Uh, you know. Okay, well, there's some of her. How do you feel about Michael Shannon? You know, I wouldn't throw him out of bed. Well, he's not in it. Uh, <laughs> I, I was watching. In. That was another reason. <laughs> Tom also, also thought Michelle Yeoh was going to be in it. <laughs> At some point, I got it in my head that amongst the people. In this this horrible David Wayne comedy, I thought Michael Shannon was in it. So I got maybe you know I got to where there's only like 20 minutes of it left, and I'm like, oh wait, when is Michael Shannon going to come into this? So I went on IMDb to look at the cast list. He's not in it for some reason. I thought Michael Shannon was going to be in. They came together, so I was watching. You just more like of it. randomly pick 
people that you think should be in something without really knowing. I think Seth Rogen should be in episode seven. And then now my theory is that somebody punked me. Here, here's my theory because I've gotten this wrong a few times. Here are my theories. <laughs> I thought Michelle Yeoh was going to be in Captain America: First Soldier or whatever that silly thing was that we saw that you guys liked that I didn't like. I thought Michelle Yeoh was going to be in that because I think someone hacked IMDb. Yeah. I'm, I'm You're not just dumb. Well, what's your excuse about Gina Carano and uh, whatever other? Uh, oh, in Sabotage, Sabotage right? Yeah. I thought Gina Carano was going to be in Sabotage because she should have been. <laughs> no, wait, wait, people hack and, IMDb to fuck with you. And and I thought that Michael Shannon was going to was going to be and they came together because I'm pretty sure someone in our comment section who recommended it to us punked me and listed that name in the cast. And if that's true, if you're a listener and you did that to me, I'm coming for wow. you. <laughs> you're coming together for them. I'm telling you on the internet, don't screw with me on the internet anymore. <laughs> I'm just I'm susceptible, Caliwand. I if yeah. you tell me things I tend to believe them. Yeah, but no one told you Michelle Yeo and you still no, I'm sure. I'm positive. I must have seen that somewhere. Mm. I mean, it's weird because I mean, what was the last Michelle Yeoh movie? The fucking James Stop Bond. Stop saying it like that. Yeo? It's not Yeo. It's not like Yeo. There's, a, there's an E in it. Wait, it's Y O H. And do it, Kelly. One, what Dingus is saying is do it in the voice. <laughs> I thought oh, everybody hates the voice, and I decided all right, I'll hang up the voice. And now everyone wants to hear the voice all the time. No, they don't. It's from people. They really don't. I'm telling you. Wait, but you're the one who was doing it just now. You're like, say it the right way. Oh, you didn't Michelle, mean it. Michelle Yo, it's not hard to say. Ah, dingus to the voice. <laughs> so at any rate, the point is, if you liked Wet Hot American Summer, what the hell is wrong with I like you? That. That's that's A. And B, well, you'll probably also like they came together. Well, I don't trust you on comedies. Well, then see is this. Is it a comedy or is it a series? No, no, it's definitely a comedy. It's in the same vein as Wet Hot American Summer. It's a spoof of romantic comedies. That's what, and it wants to be very self-aware, very meta, very. Uh, it's just like executions, you know, everything. Like if it's either well done or it's not well done. But that's a good idea. And and I love Paul Rudd and Amy Poehler, and I just felt so bad. And both of them were trying so hard. Uh, Dingus, get in here. Maybe you liked they came together a little bit more than I did. You only saw fifteen minutes of it. Surely you couldn't have loathed it as much as I. Surely you saw some glimmer of hope or promise or some spark of creativity or humor in those 15 minutes, right? Dingus? Not a thing. Good Lord. That's that. <laughs> what's the thing that they're saying at the bar? It's just, oh my God, there's the scene at the bar. It's just, uh, what does it say again? Scene or seat at the bar. Uh, there's a scene at the bar where the guy says something and he says, say again. And then he says it again. He goes, come again and he says it again and, and it goes on for 15 fucking minutes I have to unbelievable it. it's just a spoof of Nora Ephron and it doesn't have quite the ability to edge her out it's terrible it's a terrible movie wait there's a Nora Ephron movie where someone says say again a bunch of times no no it's it's, uh, it's a whole you've got mail spoof I mean that's what it is it's terrible alright well Kelly Wan this is your chance they came together now available for video on um uh, but I had multiple people ask me why we didn't do Snowpiercer. Because it's horrible. That's what I said. I go, Tom would – it must be so bad that Tom made us all see Transformers to not talk about Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer is interesting. It's very much a Korean movie. Like it, it has some of the same problems as The Host, which is from the same director. But it's a, it's a huge mess. At, at times, uh, it's an interesting mess, but it's just a terrific mess. Wait, which um, host? Not the um, Sir Ronan one, the – no, the Korean, and I'm going to try the name. I'm going to screw it up, but I think it's something like Boon 
Park Chan. Uh, you know what? I'm sorry, I attempted that. Uh, it's a Korean director. He did the host, uh, the Water Monster did, one. Yeah, the Water Monster one. Right. He's done. His memories of murder him. Um, there, there are like three notable Korean directors, and I'm constantly tangling their names up because I'm such an ugly American. But it's one of the more notable Korean directors, uh, and it's. It's just a big mess. So that's why we didn't do it. The, the, the thing about uh, Snowpiercer, though, Kelly Wand, is I think it should be of interest to gamers. Because the weird thing about Snowpiercer is it's, it's very much like a video game. Uh, if, if you were to make a, a movie based on a video game and make the movie structure the same as the video game structure, because, you know, most movies from video games, they just appropriate a character and they put it in an action movie or whatever – whether it's the Max Payne thing or the Tomb Raider, they're just using a character and throwing that character named after the character from a game into various action set pieces, and maybe some of them look like something you saw in the video game. But if you were to emulate the structure of a video game in making a movie, you'd end up with something like Snowpiercer. Um, so it's got that going for it, I guess. I would say Robocop, because it's got a score in the corner the whole movie. A score in the oh, corner? Yeah, that's the, oh, yeah, you talking point. about the HUD? Yeah, it's got the yeah. countdown score as he goes yeah, through. Yeah, that's great. Kelly Wan thinks all video games have scores now. <laughs> Kelly Wan, how many how many points did you make in World of Warcraft? What was your highest score? I was a level thirty-eight. <laughs> nose. All right, so Dingus, I need your help here. I would like you to tell the listeners about the movie we saw this week, but without spoiling it, because maybe they haven't seen it and they don't want any spoilers <laughs> yet. But so Dingus, how would you explain to them something about this movie? All right, well this week we saw Tammy, mm. a two thousand fourteen American movie. About not what about knocking things off of counters? Because uh, <laughs> sometimes things just got like lightly tumped over, like the salt and pepper shaker. It wasn't always that. I think you might be misrepresenting it slightly. And sometimes they're kind of shelvy kind of areas. So not just knocking things down. You're stealing from the opsis early. God damn it! I apologize. <laughs> uh, it was direct, directed by Ben Falcone and written by him. With Melissa McCarthy. (laughs) Kelly, why is that funny? Why are you laughing at that? They're a husband and wife team. I find that, frankly, adorable. And I'm not at all being facetious. I'm sure they're a fun couple. They did it right after having a sandwich in bed together. Um, The movie stars Mark Duplass and Gary Cole. (laughs) Dinkus, oh my God. You hate women. (laughs) That's my takeaway. No, I said Mark Duplass. What's wrong with you? <laughs> oh, dude! What? Oh, it's a tough room. Tammy is rated R. Three. What? That's an R. Tammy, you bet. Come on. Wait a minute. Dingus, explain it to Kelly Wand. Tammy is rated R. Oh, we don't get to see her surroundings knobs. Fuck that shit. All right, go back. Dingus is going to explain right. it to you. Go R. ahead. Go R. ahead. Go. Why is it rated R? R. Okay, listen, listen, because this is a long list for language including sexual references. <laughs> Are you satisfied, Kelly? Also, it's lesbians, so that jacks it up a letter, doesn't it? <laughs> and lesbians. Uh, Tammy on Metacritic, which is the oh, average wow. rating from various reviews, uh, Tammy is at 39 on Metacritic. <sighs> on Rotten Tomatoes, the percentage of reviews of Tammy that are positive are listed as 23%. Mm. <laughs> so Tammy is more critically acclaimed than Transformers Age of Extinction. Uh, speaking of Transformers Age of Extinction, Tammy came in number two this holiday weekend behind the Transformers movie. By how much? Oh. 
Uh, Transformers did something like 37 million. Tammy made 21 million. Um, here's actually what I find an interesting data point. I'm sure Kelly Wan can pick it apart and make it tedious. But if you were to compare Tammy to uh, Melissa McCarthy's previous two movies, Tammy opened at 21 million. The Heat opened at 39 million. And Identity Thief opened at 34 million. Uh, now, The Heat was also a summer movie. Identity Thief was, I think, like that, that March time period. Um, but. I wonder if the lesson here is did Tammy not do as well because Melissa McCarthy alone is pulling it, whereas both The Heat and Identity Thief were sold as uh, sort of – Well, it's also 4th of July, although I guess it's counter-programming. It's it's been a terrible 4th of July too, by the way. This summer, uh, just compared to previous years, has been horrible. Well, it seems like a shitty Uh, summer movie-wise, I think. Well, that rarely has to do with how much money – I mean if you're talking about critical – Just shit I want to see in the summer. Oh, right, right. Well, that's it, Kelly. You're obviously not – you don't care enough about the movies, so they're not making as much money. Nice work. I hope you're happy. Wait, who – you made me go see this, and now you're lecturing. But at any rate, the, the point being, I think that I, I would wonder if part of the lesson that Tammy only opening at $21 million, if people will indeed say, well, it's a soft box office, mm-hmm. or will they say, you know what? She made $39 million on an opening weekend when she was with Sandra Bullock. She made $34 million when she was with Jason Bateman. Maybe Melissa Carthy, McCarthy shouldn't be uh, opening movies alone. Like maybe they should be ensemble pieces. I would hate for that to be the takeaway. But she's opening it with Sarandon. But I look – yeah, but Sarandon – the the picture though, it's called Tammy. It's just a picture of Melissa McCarthy. I don't think Susan Sarandon has been much of the marketing because there's probably – you know, that's that's – there's not much of a target audience there. With The Heat, Sandra Bullock is definitely – you know, that has – she's her own draw. Same with Jason Bateman. You know what? I think you're right and I think it is – that is what's going on. I just – I, no, I think I'm wrong. I mean, I, I would you know? love to think that I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong, um, and I hope it is just a soft box office. And uh, well, no, well, the, I was I was I was blown away that that this was the July Fourth opening, right? And then there's a July Fourth, there's a Fourth of July thing that happens in the movie. Is that a, arbitrarily? Is that just arbitrary? Is that is that coincidence? No, no. Yeah. Well, it's like Gremlins was a summer movie, but it was all Christmassy. So yeah, I mean, they constantly have to work around, like, how much buffer do we have to give to something like Transformers? I mean, we can't open another right. big movie right after it. But, but it doesn't – I mean, movie. the thing is it doesn't it doesn't compete with Transformers. There's no overlap. Uh, the audience for yeah. – I mean, some people might see them. But as far as the demographic appeal, uh, Tammy was pretty much unopposed. Which the idiots know, was, well, that's, what I, what, that's what I mean. They're not going to open – uh, a Godzilla or right. what are we, what are, right. or the or the next big movie against Transformers. They're going to open something like Tammy, but I'm still surprised that July Fourth is usually a huge opening. Movie, right. right, and it was Tammy, and, it's, and I was surprised at that last week. And then in the movie, July Fourth plays prominently, which is well, this this is. Wow. Uh, I, I mean, I think that's one of the one of the the things that I think supports. This not being a matter of, hey, Melissa McCarthy can't open a movie alone, uh, is that this is the lowest Fourth of July weekend in terms of just overall box office since '99. So it's, it's, yeah, it's a very soft box office. And I, I just hope that all you studio executives listening take that into account and don't blame Melissa McCarthy, you jerks. There, that's what I have to say about that. They're not going to get any. But they always draw the wrong conclusions anyway. Like the island. That's that's their job. They they blame Scarlett Johansson for that. She's way too attractive. She's yeah, really distracting. It up, yeah. And you, you cannot focus on the You'll movie. And I, I'm, I'm really concerned about Lucy, the movie o- Lucy opening. I'm, I'm afraid that she's just too attractive. 
they're going to need to put her in one of those under the skin frumpy wigs and uh, yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure I entirely agree with that statement, Tom. <laughs> but we'll talk. We'll talk about that later. All right, well, hold that thought. Yeah. Uh, let's get into some Tammy by having Kelly Wand tell us just a blow by blow account of the the things that happen in Tammy. And I should warn the listeners: there will be spoilers. Was the blow by blow a sex joke? It was not. <laughs> Kelly Wan, sometimes a blow is just a blow. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so, Kelly Wan, I think what do you like that call... joke. I thought it was funny. I guess, come what on. are you going to call this, this week's synopsis? <laughs> Give Tom a break. Uh, Tomopsis. Awesome. Rock and roll with the Tomopsis. Tomopsis. Uh, sidebar. Somebody handed me a pack of cherry gummy bears right before Tammy started. Fruit-flavored candy shaped like other stuff confuses me, but I forced one down and promptly forgot about them during the movie. <laughs> They melted under my ass and formed a gluey red patina on my pants. Is it patina or patina? It's, I think it's patina. I've never heard patina. Although, never consult me on the pronunciation of a word. That's my advice to you, Kelly Wand. Okay, I'm going to take that advice. It's patina because it sounds like a name like Tina and not Tammy. Plus, it it's rhymes with Latina. There. Just how do, you, how do you pronounce Latina? Is it Latina or Latina? Latina. Well, it's Latin America. Not <laughs> Latin America. High fidelity. That was a weird thing to call America. But anyway, some cherry gummy bears uh, melted in my pants, and I didn't notice till after I tried to get out of my car later and found I was stuck to my seat with gummy bears. Watching the movie felt similar. <laughs> Melissa McCartney. <laughs> Melissa McCartney works at Jack in the Box. I'm not sure where, but her commute involves driving through a deer-infested dairy farm in Wisconsin. Like most people who prepare fast food for the general public, she's dumb, accident-prone, and angry. But she's heavy, which somewhat ironically from a medical perspective is movie-speak for good-hearted. Since she's singing aloud, she doesn't see a deer coming for miles and hits it with her car. This sequence sets up Tammy's three primary superpowers, crashing into shit, rambling ad nauseum to the disinterested till they can't take it anymore, (laughs) and being unable to tell whether something's breathing. <laughs> she breathes on the deer till it leaves. Oops, sorry. Luckily, her car works okay still. As a chimney, her boss fires her for it being the beginning of the movie, so she responds. <laughs> I don't get the jokes anymore in any movie, I've decided. It's way over my head. Ever since that Google movie, I've been really confused by comedies. She responds with her signature move of knocking shit over. Dingus. For some reason, this behavior surprises her boss. She breaks his elbow by pelting it with a hamburger bun. Melissa McCartney drives home to her loser-ass huge house in her previously non-working car. I guess she's married, but her husband's having sex with a blonde woman who knocks her down by raising her open palm. I haven't been this amused by weight and mass since Jamie Lannister took on a glass wall in The Other Woman. (laughs) Tammy's day just keeps getting worse. She tries to spill all her stuff all over the floor, but trips and accidentally winds up packing it all. Then she tries to bend over to rip her pants, but accidentally zips them up. After she tries to give them both the finger, but accidentally gives a standing O, Tammy's all, Fine, you can keep two doors down for my mom and grandma. 
I'll just move in with them. That way, every morning we'll see each other and you'll be reminded of just what you're missing. She tries to step on a rake and hit herself in the face, but accidentally wins the lottery. The music's all. We've all been Melissa McCarthy most of the time. She stops over a couple feet to where her mom and grandma live, probably along with other family members, none of whom saw her husband cheating with the neighbor through the kitchen window. Melissa McCartney's all, well, I got fired, my marriage broke up, and the deer lived. <laughs> her grandma, Leslie Ann Warren's all, never mind that shit, here's six grand, let's go to Niagara Falls, and your stupid mom can't come. Alice and Janney comes in and goes, wait, what's my character? But they're already peeling out. <laughs> it's a weird use of an all-star cast, except for Ackroyd, who is great. <laughs> You are not kidding, man. Melissa <laughs> McCartney and her Sarand Ma drive and bond over the opening theme from Devil's Rejects. They drive to a location. Sarand and Zal. <laughs> I'm putting more detail in than I think. The script And Frank Cohn, yeah, and Melissa McCartney. They drive to a location. Sarand and Zal. Here I am saying dialogue in front of a wooden eagle statue. Eventually, things wind down, and they drive some more, while the different music's all. Nothing happens during this part. Driving. Their next stop's a lake. The first of many lakes. Where, within seconds, Melissa McCartney drives a jet ski into a pier off-screen. Everything's fucking off-screen. That's just me. The guy from Eastbound and Down's all, You break it, you buy it, so they buy the total jet ski for $4,800 and the broken pier for another 1800 and then drag them around by a trailer hitch. I guess they also broke and bought. Leslie Ann Warren's all, don't worry, that money took me only seven decades tasks, and we only got 38 states to go on negative 600 bucks. The important things that we forget are less recent troubles. They drive some more. The music's all. This isn't necessarily the music the characters are listening to. <laughs> <laughs> Remember where they mouth the words and then later, never mind. They stop at a bar where Gary Coleman and Mark Duplass are farmers. Gary Coleman's horny as fuck for Sarandon, but Duplass doesn't drink enough to want to bang Tammy. While Gary Coleman and Sarandman have glorious sex in a hotel room that we're not allowed to see after having sex in a car that we're also not allowed to see, we get to watch Melissa McCartney get sexually rejected by a raccoon. Been on that date. With all due respect to the raccoon scrota, I think I'd rather watch a kid watch TV news about Godzilla. In the morning, Duplass, who somehow knows exactly which motel room to go to, kicks Tammy awake and goes, God, I love it when Pop fucks around on Mom. Why didn't you call me? The short answer is that Tammy doesn't have a cell phone, and his dad locked her out of the hotel room so he could fuck her grandma. Instead, she shyly knocks something over and crashes into something. The motel room door opens, and Gary Coleman, Sarandon, and the raccoon all emerge smoking cigarettes and giggling. Poor old Tammy. We cut to the exact same stock footage of the car driving across the same bridge, but this time the music's all, uh, we're in act two now, so things might slow down. Sarandlins finds out she caught VD from Gary Coleman, so she has to go to the hospital to get a hip operation. Then Melissa McCartney throws beer at a parking lot. So she and her grandma both get arrested and put in women's prison. I was kind of zoning out during this period. Just kind of going by what I remember. Since they blew all their money on jet skis and drinks for Gary Coleman, 
Tammy breaks out of prison, break dances in slow motion to music I guess she hears in her head, then holds up a jack-in-the-box for some pies. She gets mad at the old man who works there and screams at him to eat some pies, too, while she waves a fake gun in his face, but he just smiles gently at her. He knows what's up. He had a daughter once. Since they cooperate fully with her, she locks them in the freezer. Unfortunately, they survive and rat her out, although later on they're all in a hot tub at Niagara Falls, along with the cop whose car Tammy's beer destroyed, so maybe the system works. Tammy gets back to the motel to find out rich farmer Gary Coleman posted Grandma's bail. Then I guess left again. (laughs) What state are they in? Never mind. They drive to a dirt path beside a forest and park next to Kathy Bates. Kathy Bates is all, here, this will solve your cop problems. She lights a Molotov cocktail and blows up their car, which then sets fire to the adjoining forest and most of the state. I nudge the nine-year-old Melissa McCartney enthusiast beside me who's staring at the gummy bear sap dripping from my seat and go, the cool thing about Molotov cocktails is that if you fuck up the throw, afterwards you can still drink them, huh? The lesbians hold a Viking funeral for the jet ski by setting fire to it, despite the fact that doing so earlier with the Molotov cocktail might have made more sense. Then Kathy Bates and the Asian chick from Arliss have a lesbian 4th of July party. Since farmers love lesbians and they're only three driving montages away, Gary Coleman and Mark Duplass are also invited. <laughs> Two dudes. Not hundred. <laughs> Chicks. Sarandon wins Gary Coleman's heart all over again by flashing her boobs at lesbians, then jeering at Tammy and calling her a fat loser in front of a microphone. The music's all, don't laugh right now. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy Bates upbraids Tammy for her mom's rant I mean her grandma's rant Then the cops come and arrest Tammy for burning a jet ski She does hard time for 38 days Kathy Bates, though rich in the cause of said arson Is strangely mum To celebrate their victory, everybody goes to Niagara Falls in raincoats I know Gary Coleman didn't bail her out either like, you only been there, mind. Mark Duplass is all, my life sure is more interesting since you went to prison last month. I like you now. They both kiss the waterfall. The music's all, you think that's perfect? Hang on. We see the neighbors ditching Tammy's loser husband for her loser boss. That's what you get, asshole. Tammy's not there to see this happen, but the music's all, don't worry, we'll tell her. <laughs> the credits are all, you're welcome for the gummy bears, Kelly. Get out. The end. <laughs> Look what I had to work with. Uh, I mean, the end. Excellent work, Tammy. Tom. Thank you so much. Tomopsis. <sighs> Tom. Yes, Kelly Warren. Why'd you make us see this fucking thing? I'm really annoyed at you. What was the other option? And Snowpiercer. How bad was Snowpiercer that we. It doesn't open until next week, does it? Yeah, it was oh, no, it's, it's video on demand next week. Already. Right, it already opened. I just assumed it was out from how many people were going, you're not doing Snowpiercer? What? Huh? Uh, you were allowed to see Snowpiercer. I would not have prohibited that. But it was that. really just, that. Know, it was, it was, it let uh, you in. We, we, hu- we are huge fans of Melissa McCarthy on this podcast. Now, stop it. We're huge yeah, fans of hers. I yeah, mean, I know I know. I, you, you guys weren't crazy. I mean, I'm I, especially Kelly weren't crazy about the identity thief theft uh, movie, but I really liked it. I loved her chemistry with Jason Bateman. I thought she was yeah. awesome. I, I thought like she totally that. carried that movie, and especially because he's so great as a straight man. I thought she was great in that, and I thought The Heat was really good as well. Um, so, I I was really on board to see this, because I love her. 
Well, Dingus is our official uh, Melissa McCarthy enthusiast. Don't we all love her, though? Talk Perhaps the most. Yeah, but Dingus gets, Dingus the, he gets the official title. He gets the title this week. It's a rotating title. Yeah. Kelly Wand, you can have it next week. So Dingus is the holder of the title this week. Uh, does this movie belong alongside the heat and identity thing? No. Where, where does it compare to those? This movie is a pile of crap. Yeah, uh, uh, I'm really, Boring. I'm really, really disappointed. I think she needs to uh, do some other things. Um, I think that this character is played out. Uh, she did it in Identity Thief, and she did it fine. She doesn't need to do this character anymore. And and in fact, this movie is so uneven and awful. I, I mean, I mean, it's the product of two, un, I guess, unexperienced screenwriters. I mean, what are you going to do? Uh, I I do agree with you, Tom, that it's adorable that this husband and wife wrote this together and he directed it. I really, really wanted it to succeed for those reasons. Um, but Jesus, she's done such great work. And she can do much more than this. Come on. This is just tired. Do you feel that she does need to be paired with someone? Like, can she... Uh, I guess she is kind of... This is kind of, as Identity... We mentioned before, as Identity Thief pairs her with Jason Bateman and The Heat with Sandra Bullock, this is kind of a Melissa McCarthy-Susan Sarandon pairing, isn't it? Uh, mm. Yeah, I guess so. It's kind of a weak road movie, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The okay. one thing I liked, though, was is something she did by herself, which was when she was trying to lock that freezer with the spoon. I thought that was funny. And that, was, that was actually a question. That was I had in my notes. Was that a funny moment? Yeah. Was that laugh. good comment? It was a good Dingus, do you agree? When she's fumbling with the wooden spoon in the freezer? Uh, no, I would equate it with the bar moment. To be quite honest, I thought it went on okay. for far too long. <laughs> I'm with Kelly Wan in that I did like that moment, and I thought this if it this is like a this is a, a clutch moment here. Is this comedy to you? If not, you're you're not going to like probably much of the movie. If so, I think there are going to be things you appreciate because I did like that moment. I liked mm-hmm. watching her fumble trying to get that spoon in the it's little slot. It's hard to do that, and she yeah. Oh, so, I so mean, you liked the movie? Um, <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, I, I would say I I liked the first part of it. I liked when it wasn't being a pat studio comedy, yeah, right. but by the time it started tying a bow on everything at the end, I thought it got absolutely insufferable. Um, but a lot of the early bits I really liked. I liked how it opened. You know, that that was not a conventional studio comedy opening. By the way, the wretched they came together makes fun of studio comedy openings and actually has one and thinks that it's making fun of them by doing the same thing, which it's not. But that was one of the things I kind of appreciated in uh, Tammy is this weird opening where she she hits a deer and she kind of freaks out about it and she lies down on the ground. Like that was weird. That was a weird yeah. character introduction. And I liked it that. It's shot bit. weird. I, it's shot weird it's and it's just a weird way to meet a character. I liked um I liked that the scene with just her and Susan Sarandon in front of that tacky bird. You know, just singing. I I mean I liked how some of this was very unconventional. Well, just just pieces of just actors hanging out with each other and once they started applying a message on the end and doling out the appropriate comeuppance and all of that stuff then i thought it got completely terrible and it completely betrayed some of the early weird stuff it became a glib maudlin studio comedy when that's not what it had been for a lot of its early running and i was enjoying some of that early running um kelly wand what would be your overall assessment dingus pile of crap me i think it kind of falls apart how would you assess this overall? A uh, pile of crap. I like the opening maybe less than you did, but maybe only because by the payoff, there is no payoff. Like, wait, so now Mark Duplass likes her. <laughs> but there's not much – they don't make good use of her, which is weird considering it's her husband behind 
the camera. Like she, that spoon thing is a is a rare instance in the movie where she gets to do something like that. A lot of it's just bullshit. It's just them driving around, and I don't think I think she and Sarandon had some okay chemistry, but I was very unclear on their dynamic, like their characters, whether they liked each other going into this. We don't know anything about their history. I kind of thought, I mean, just as the wacky grandma, I really was not into Susan Sarandon's character. I, 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 just, I think it's caused it a weak road movie, and I think that's a good point, is that if you want to have that kind of you know buddy road movie, I mean, think of The Rover, or which we all love. You know, the two characters, Midnight Run, the two characters have to be vivid, they have to be distinct, their relationship has to be clear, you have to kind of know why does he or she feel this way about him or her, all that has to be clear for the audience, and I think that gets at a lot of why it's kind of a weak road movie is because of Susan Sarandon's character. But uh, and they, they eventually try to breathe some life into that with all this stuff about, oh, I left you because I was an alcoholic and didn't trust myself. That's what I want to, I don't want to see that. Right, and that's where it becomes this glib modeling What's studio. the fun part that that's the penance for? Like, okay, that's the wages of sin part. What, what's the wacky fun? I don't know. Except for the stick-up, they don't get to do anything exciting. They uh, are so, buying beer for miners. There's that. Uh, why? <laughs> why? Uh, <laughs> because she's a wacky grandma. Is she wacky? Is Gary... I don't, I, don't just, I just don't understand any of these characters. I don't know why, why it's supposed to be funny when anything happens. If she's a clumsy buffoon and she can't put a spoon in a freezer, at least I get that. Like, I understand. Well, she can't because she's wearing a. a, a right, and I get that's fun. That, like I can. That's a joke that I can. I can wrap my brain around. But plus, Kelly Wan, she drew shark teeth on it. And I liked when Sarandon said it had a calming effect. I thought that was really that was, that was great. When she says it, it, when she said it had a calming effect, it was calming. One, of the one moments in the movie. Yeah, it sounded improvised. And, and they're tiger, but they're tiger teeth. Ah, right. Thank you, Dingus. Right. But the jokes. But identity, the- like it made me put more value on other movies. It made it should have made you guys like Nebraska more because Nebraska is way better oh, than this. Yeah. Really? You, you take this movie over Nebraska? No, no, no. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm so happy that you said that because what what I wanted to see, having watched this, was a a, uh, a Nebraska with Mark Duplass and Gary Cole. This, yeah. That's- that's what I want to see. <laughs> yeah. Dingus! Oh my God, you were such a dude. You you just you <laughs> you wanted this to not be a chick movie. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I don't think any of these people are characters. I, I don't think Tammy is a real character. I don't <sighs> think her grandmother is a real character. She yeah. just emerges out of that back room with sixty sixty seven hundred dollars in cash. Yeah. She's like, let's so go. We're we're rolling. Okay, Deus right. Ex Machina from the first scene. Let's do this. Okay, fine. Uh, but. But finally, how is that different from Bruce Dern in, in Nebraska, though? I would it's ask. It's not you. any, but I would rather okay. be on a road trip with Gary Cole and Mark Duplass than these two goofballs. Okay, so Dingus, this then is why I want to cut the movie some slack is because you're right. Normally, and, and those are dead on observations. You know, who are these characters? What's going on? And and you normally, you know, you get that in a crappy. You're saying you would rather see that with Gary Cole and Mark Duplass, and I want to talk about them in a minute. But one of the things I appreciated about this movie and I'm sure anybody can see this coming a mile away, the studio certainly could, is that it's about women. Is that it's, it's, and, it's, and it's about, I love how in this movie, men are peripheral. It's not about them. A couple of dudes show up and they're, they're, they're man can In the case of, yeah, instead of, in the case of, of Jay Duplass, he's a man cookie. You know, they, they have no substantial effect on the action or on the movie. The, the movie is a just women and their relationships to other women. And it's not bridesmaids. It's not as good as that, to be sure. But it's attempting a similar structure 
to tell a story that really doesn't need men. And I love that it arrives, and this was such a great, weird surprise, at this huge lesbian party. You know, it's so dedicated to this idea of let's just have a story about women and we don't need men that when we have the big party scene, it's going to be a lesbian party. Um, and I just kind of appreciated that different angle to it. Because you're right, Dingus. I, I would, you know, I, I, I love Gary Cole. I love Mark Duplass. I would love to see them do something like that. But they wouldn't be giving it this angle of this is a, this is a project about women. Um, and that's one of the things I really liked about it. And it wasn't about women relating to men. Um, so that was one of the things that I that gave me that and Melissa McCarthy. And I want to talk about her in a second. Those are the two things that really sort of gave me a soft spot for the, this movie early on before it just became studio trash, I, I think. Well, but, but, but I felt it wasn't about women relating to women. It was, they, these weren't real people. I mean, I've I've had a, a you know many movies. It wasn't well written. I would say it wasn't a well. I, I'm not defending it's it as well written, written as far as what it's attempting. Okay, and it's okay. why I say it's no bridesmaids because bridesmaids did it well, but it's attempting a similar structure, and I admired that a lot. Well, I, I've so had I, plenty of movies where I've said you know, I much would have rather seen this movie be about the female character. I mean, like Fault in Our Stars, for right. instance. I mean, I would much rather see the female character step forward in plenty of movies. Did you see that? Yeah. Um, you saw Fault in Our Stars? No, I'm thinking of the uh, that awful Miles Teller one. What's oh. the... Um, Spectacular uh, Now. Spectacular Now, sorry. Spectacular right, Now, right, right. Which, I, which I would much rather that have been about Shailene Woodley than his character. I would much rather that character been in the four. So there's plenty of times when that happened. It's just that, that the female characters were so transparent and not characters to me that by the time we get to Gary Cole and Mark Duplass, I felt like, oh, okay, well, these are actually I feel like these are people kind of there's some there's some sort of history here there's something going on um so i for me it's not about male energy female energy whether it's about females or males that lesbian party is a is a complete you know circus to me it it, it i don't believe any that's a good, that's a good word for it fair enough well, nothing yeah. funny happens at it it's the, they just attend a party it may as well just be the rap party for the movie <laughs> <laughs> it's the exact same cast well, Kelly Ryan, I think that the Viking funeral for the jet ski was supposed to be funny. Yeah, What's, might, why is that funny? Pretty sure, pretty sure that was supposed Lesbians to be funny. and Vikings don't mix. Is that the funny part? <laughs> or is it because well, Kathy Bates is a pyromaniac, which we're just arbitrarily told. So I really feel it's last chance to not fall apart completely and become a crappy studio comedy was Kathy Bates' speech telling her to just grow up already and we're not mysterious. Like I feel if the movie had ended at that point with that kind of message is just, you know, grow the fuck up, quit thinking you're like special and mysterious and misunderstood. We're all simple engines. Like if that if that had been the point rather than ending where everybody gets to go to Niagara yeah. Falls, you get you get to your, you know, your man cookie is going to show up, and you can eat it too. You know, you can have, uh, like that. If the movie, I just would have had so much more goodwill for this movie if it had ended with that Kathy Bates speech. Well, and, I, and I kind of liked that moment a little bit. I think nah, well, redemption, boo. Well, Tom, but that was the redemption moment, though. The redemption moment was later. That was the grow the fuck up moment, and it reminds me a lot of a movie I adore called Roadie, where Lois Smith tells uh, Ron Eldard, she's his mother, she slaps him, and she tells him to grow up, and it's during his speech where he's like, oh, nobody ever loved me. And she's like, what the fuck? And she slaps him and tells him to grow up, and it's this great, you know, movies about man-children, and that's kind of what this is, in a way. Uh, want man-children to indulge that and to, you know, experience that. And I love it when a movie comes along and says, you know, snap out of it, grow up. And so I felt that moment with Kathy Bates, 
um, that could have been great if the movie had just stopped there and made that the culmination of Tammy's journey mm-hmm. rather than going into, oh, now we get to go to Niagara Falls and look who's going to show up. I think they both suck because it's like Ernesty just reminds me of like how like Laverne and Shirley, you know, like 27 minutes where they're all wacky and dumb and, f- right. and funny. And then in the last two minutes they go, all right, listen, we all care about each other and that's what's important. It's right. Everything you just laughed at, you're an asshole for laughing at that. So... Um, I don't know. Well, Tom, you, you, uh, you just you slid something in earlier about wanting to talk about Ms. Melissa McCarthy. So uh-huh. I would like. To okay, so that was yeah. And- so you say they're not real characters, and I agree with you. The script is a little outrageous, and I don't believe. For instance, it is criminal. It is absolutely criminal, literally. And I hope the cops are given wind to this to cast Tony Collette and do that little with her. I was so disappointed. Oh my God, I have such a Tony Collette. So, and and same with Alice and Janie. At least Alice and Janie gets a little more. But there's another movie I really hate called uh, The Way Way Back. Uh, I would say really hate. I think it's weak. It's very studio. But Way Way Back. Whenever Alice and Janie is absolutely fucking electric in Way Way Back, I recommend that movie just for the screen time she has. Because every time she's on that on the screen in Way Way Back, that movie just crackles to life it's amazing and tony collette also really really good in that movie so the fact that yeah dingus i'm with you when you say these aren't characters it's you know where's susan sarandon coming from why would you waste tony collette like that for the most part i completely agree but here again is where i have a soft spot a soft spot and it's melissa mccarthy's um her sincerity and her vulnerability can overcome i think Weak writing in, in a unique way. Like, I just really enjoy watching her sincerity and seeing her being vulnerable like she does in a couple of scenes. And that, in a way, is all the kind of character – I wouldn't say all the character I need because it would be great if she also got a really good script. But that means a lot to me, and that's a lot of why I like her, and those were, for me, on display several times in the movie. Well, the parts I liked were improvised, or they seemed like like that spoon thing. Probably know that was like the ninetieth take of it. Mm-hmm. But so it's like you can get by without a script if you have shitloads of really good material. But I don't mm-hmm. think they did. Like they didn't have any spine to hang it on. But as far as far as Melissa McCarthy, though, I mean, it, it is just a very personal thing. It's part of you know, I I, well, I love watching her. We all do. and I feel like. And and I do feel like there's enough of that in here, especially early on, that I didn't mind a lot of the movie's weaknesses until it became, like I mentioned, this maudlin package we get in the end. But she's playing but, or, isn't she playing like kind of the same character that she was playing in Identity Thief, except now it's Well Dingus mentioned that as yeah. well. So Dingus, you feel that. Uh I, I think so. And I, you know, Tom, I would I would feel the same way if you know, you, you guys are kind of talking like she got handed this script and it was thrust upon yeah, her. She she her. wrote right. this. And so right. I can't really forgive the these moments that you know when she, when she goes out to find you know when she goes out and finds that Susan Sarandon is isn't breathing on the lawn chair and she just lies there and she has a crying scene instead of immediately screaming nine one one because her grandma isn't breathing. I mean, there's a number of moments where she wrote these things and she had an opportunity to write herself a better character. Instead, she wrote herself a caricature of the things she did in identity thief. I mean, I mean, she does some things that are, that are touching here and there, but I don't find that they're in a good script and she is the one who wrote it. 
Right, but I'm not defending her ability as a scriptwriter. I am lauding her ability as an actress, uh, and and that's <sighs> that's sort of what I'm saying is that I like watching her enough, and I feel that her sincerity and her vulnerability are two key elements of her as an actress, and that those are on display in this movie, despite whatever crappy script she may have have given created as an outlet for that sincerity and that vulnerability. You know, scenes when she's talking to Mark Duplass. Ugh. You know, I, well, the, I mean, there, there's yeah. a there's a moment where she says to him, and I. I really, I really liked it, where where he where at their party he makes a pass at her and she's like, I'm sorry, I'm I'm still married. Uh, I, I know that's ridiculous, but I'm still married. And I kind of felt, I mean, that's really touching. But then I remember, wait a minute, you had a scene in the bar where you climbed onto him and tried to yeah. stick your tongue in his mouth. So which is which it? Is it? <laughs> um, so she wrote it. I mean, I. I, I understand right. what you're saying. You keep, and you keep I, going back to her writing it, and I'm not disagreeing with that at I all. Think, but but you you mentioned, you know, that's you know, I can look at that moment with Mark Duplass and and appreciate, you know, here are two actors working together. <laughs> she is doing stuff that other actors don't do as well. Okay, you know, that a bad actor can't accomplish. Right. And yeah, it, it betrays what she tried to write before in the script, but as an actress, I really like watching her work. Um and, you know, that just means a lot to me. And it's, you know, Kelly Wan, you've said before, oh, you and Dingus are uh, way more into actors. I'm way more into writing. So I can I can certainly appreciate from your perspective. But Dingus, surely you can appreciate just as an actress, even though she's given herself what you say is a pile of crap as a script, and I don't necessarily disagree, you've got to appreciate just that sincerity and that vulnerability. <laughs> That's not funny, though. To me, it has to be funny. It shouldn't be in the comedy. Okay. Although I did think the Susan Sarandon scene was kind of like where she thinks she's dead. Was that Melissa McCarthy's tribute to the abyss? <laughs> <laughs> Let's do the abyss in this part. I also love that she runs inside and they all hug each other for like 10 minutes instead of calling 911. Yeah. Such an awkward moment, but that was that the movie had lost and, me. And that then was, they do like, oh, oh look, it. she's stumbling up in the background. It's a comedy moment. No, we're going to put her in the ambulance. Oh, it's not a comedy moment. Yeah. Uh, I want you guys to compare her. Does she, does she remind you of any other actors? Or does uh, it's kind of a loaded question because I have something in Elizabeth mind. Uh, yeah, yeah. Let me John just put Campbell. this up. Uh, okay, well, that's an interesting one. Why do you say that? Uh, just because there's yeah. something sort of sad about her. Like okay. she's... I'm, I'm interested in talking about this, too, because I, I want to talk about the way the movie deals with her weight, actually. And do you guys, like, I, one of my first thoughts, too, is she looks so unhealthy, and I, I there's almost this, like, Smiling. concern. Uh, that's what I'm thinking, Kelly Wand, is because they both have that same, you know, I, highlight, I mentioned sincerity and vulnerability, and that was a big part of Chris Farley as well, uh, is, as, as, a, as a comedian. Those were huge traits for, I think, what made him Literally. effective. Is his sincerity and his vulnerability. Uh, so rather than John Candy, because uh, you know he has a well, John Candy's a, also a good comparison. But I definitely think of Chris Farley. But their health—they both died from. It's like they're—they were the overweight comedian whose livelihood killed them. So I don't know. This is the first movie where I thought because I was even in Identity Thief, I got the sense that she was being filmed to look fatter than she is. And also in Bridesmaids, too. Like, she was kind of the chubby one by default. But in this, she's looked, like, genuinely fat. Like, she's getting fatter. 
But I thought that they were making a, a concerted effort not to even mention it for most of the movie. I mean, when they give the description about the bank robber, it's she's five foot two and she has a T-shirt on that looks like a bear that says Mahalo. No mention is made whatsoever, and nobody ever says anything about it when she's flirting with Mark Duplass. Nothing is said. It's not until her grandmother makes a fat joke that it's even mentioned at all in the movie. And for the for most of the movie, I thought they were just going to say – not going to acknowledge it. That she's just another character. He's attracted to her, and uh, she's kind of a loser, but – her weight isn't an issue, so we're just going to talk. We're not going to deal with it. And I kind of liked that until Susan Sarandon had to call her fat. And I think, by the way, that's an important distinction from uh, between her and Chris Farley, because a lot of Chris Farley's comedy was was founded on his physique. You yeah. know, he did the thing about fat man in a little coat, and he did that stripper uh, gag with uh, Patrick Swayze with his belly flopping out and a lot of sweating and flopping around. Like I think a lot of Chris Farley's comedy was highlighting hey i'm fat this is funny and that's kind of one of the things i really like about melissa mccarthy is her physique seems incidental uh she can do jokes about being clumsy and stuff and trying to get over the counter but that's not necessarily a hey i'm fat haha you know it's this clumsy thing and it plays partly because she is in bad shape but i don't think she milks or or they want to make her physique why she's funny, and I like that. Yeah. You know, yeah. well, I, I like that about Melissa McCarthy a lot. But aren't all those aren't all her mishaps at the beginning of the movie? Like, even though they don't mention her weight, over. I don't think they are. Kyle. No, I don't What's think at all. I, I don't mean, think they are. You could easily have I mean, anybody can drive into a deer. No, no, but getting fired, like you're, like if she was the the super hot Jack in the Box teen, like she she wouldn't. Kristen Wiig could have played this Absolutely. role, and, and I'm just saying. Absolutely, and, I'm just, and, and, the, yeah. and the joke you made in the opsis is the is the is she got fired because it's the beginning of the movie. I mean that that's <laughs> sure. <laughs> I remember. Yeah, well, you know. Uh, and so again, that's another thing that I really uh, I really like about watching Melissa McCarthy. It's it's not jokes, and and maybe it's because I don't you know the dynamics of her being a woman maybe make it different. But I think it's it's an important part of my admiration for her success is that she's not making her weight the source of her humor. You know, she's funny in the same way that. Um, this is almost a bad example because he's also kind of overweight, but the same way that like Seth Rogen is, right. is he's just like laid back, very naturalistic. Seth Rogen, by the way, doesn't have any of that amazing vulnerability that she has or that Chris Farley had, but that sincerity. Um, Jonah Hill's Jonah another Hill. bad example too. Well, Jonah Hill has some of that vulnerability. He can do that, but Jonah Hill's also – he can be a lot of bluster. Um, you know, but, but yeah, you're right. That's another good example. But, also, but I, I don't think that, that the – I don't think that – and one of the things I do like about this movie is that it's trying to push that boundary of, you know, we accept in sitcoms and movies that a super hot woman is going to fall for a fat, schlubby guy. Right. I right, mean, right. we just yeah. we just accept that, you know. King of Queens. King, uh, Kevin James. Nobody, nobody blinks twice. Yeah, that super hot wife. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and we will accept that time and time and time again because that's, you know, every male's fantasy. Super hot little woman is going to fall for a big fat guy. Um, but we have a hard time processing, I think, uh, a, a live, like, I mean, not that Mark Duplass is that live, but uh, a, a handsome guy falling for a, a girl who's overweight. We have a hard time seeing that as just a romantic pairing without making a point of it. And they don't make a point of it. When they're sitting there, they don't make a point of it. It's nice. I like that. Yeah. Uh, 
I also want to call out uh, just because I really I'd seen her in a, a a horrible movie called The Candidate with Zach Galifianakis and uh, Will Ferrell. I always like that uh, movie. It's the campaign. Oh, the campaign! I saw Thank it on you. cable, and I, I was the candidate is the uh, is the uh, Beatty? Robert Redford. Yeah, the Redford one. Which is Wait, the campaign was funny. I thought. What's the what's the campaign? The campaign is Will Ferrell and Zach Galifianakis oh. uh, running for a congressional seat in the it's not, I thought that was supposed to be terrible. Is it not terrible? It's terrible. Kelly Wan mm. loves it. It's terrible. I saw it. I just found myself watching chunks of it, and there was – it was kind of – Okay, go ahead and sit through the whole thing and then get back to me. It's – but see, that's a movie where I get the jokes. So maybe that to me is – that's how low my bars become while as with Cabby <laughs> and the intern, I'm like, wait, are they dumb? Are they smart? I don't know. Like – uh, one of the things that I like in the campaign is the actress who plays Zach Galifianakis' wife is an actress named Sarah Baker, who plays Becky, the fast food worker who gets held up. Oh, and, right, right. Uh, and I, I really like that oh, actress. I, I like too. the scene. Oh. That actress was also just very naturalistic and playing off of what Melissa McCarthy was doing and playing off what the older actor was doing. I loved that scene, and I loved that actress. Um, and she plays Galifianakis' wife in, in the, the campaign. Oh, I really liked her. That's great. Yeah. Well, she got the scene uh, of Tammy, so she's two for two. See, wait, now you're liking the campaign. I've talked you into it. No, I'm not. I've <laughs> <laughs> done no such thing. Uh, Kelly Wand, as a uh, newly uh, – well, you're, you're in the middle of watching The Veep. Uh, what do you think of Gary Cole? Oh, you're done with it. I, I Gary Cole – Yeah, he's amazing. He really is, and I think part of it is just his long history. But yeah. I, I think, speaking of adorable, one of the most adorable things in Veep is Gary Cole's character's relationship with Sue, the office worker, and just how it's underplayed and nobody acknowledges it, but everybody seems to know it, and it's so apparent when you're watching it, and the looks and the comments they make to each other, and what an unlikely pair they are. Uh, I just have so much will, goodwill for Gary Cole partly because of that little bit of Veep. Uh, yeah, it's like the only good relationship in the office. Uh, in in the office, in yeah, everyone else is kind of bummed out by their. They might be the most functional relationship. Uh, yeah, I, I missed that show. Might... I binge watched it. Now I feel like I got in too early. So now well, I'm kind of sense. Sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, but were you done talking about Gary Cole and Mark Duplass? Uh, Jay Duplass. Wait, Mark or Jay? Mark. I'm always Mark. <laughs> He's a farmer uh, in this, yeah. you see. Gary yeah, Cole, the they're both farmers. The man cookie farmer, yeah. Um, Did it... Is $4 a gallon, thanks Obamacare, a funny joke? What's that mean? I didn't get that joke. Someone went, well, the, the, it's the president's fault, the economy is bad. But oh. that's Melissa McCarthy's, her character's take on politics, or... Is she stupid? Is she, like, what? I don't understand the character. Because I didn't think well, she, at least she was clearly defined as, like... She's stupid because the honey shit joke has to be explained to her, which, and explained to us, apparently. And that's also this idea about not knowing Lance Armstrong from Neil Armstrong, oh, but yet she still knows who the she still knows who the Almond Brothers are, even though I think she's a little too young for that. Uh, yeah, I don't think the script can make up its mind whether she's stupid or not. It's one of those things of if we can get a joke in here, we'll, we'll, we'll make her stupid for this scene. Which, by the way, that's what I didn't even tell that she seemed not she seemed kind of selfish in general. She could certainly be abrasive. Uh, yeah, you know, it's a fair point. I don't, I don't know that the movie is really concerned with telling you the In Nebraska, to... Will Forte was at least trying to do the right thing. How do you, how do you say that name, Kelly Fort? How do you say it? <laughs> I think he's from Canada. 
But Sarandon? Oh. Will Fort. Sarandon not showing her breasts, by the way. It's oh. rated R. Nope. You know what? Nope. Yeah, I'd, it's kind of... I'd fuck her 20 years from now. One, two, three, not only you and me, got 180 degrees, and I'm cold in between. All right, Kelly Ryan, it's a date. Let's mark for Gary Cole. At least show us Gary Cole's boobs. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. Hey, we did get teased with those as well. Yeah, he's part of our man candy, damn it. <laughs> you know she'd be fun. You know she'd be so fun. Melissa McCarthy probably is too, huh? But I think I could... Kelly, one we can ask Bill Falcone about that, or Bill, uh, Bill. Bill Falcone about that. What'd you say, Mark Duplass? <laughs> Jay Duplass. Mm-hmm. They're brothers. Mark and Jay Duplass. Oh, there's are, a Jay Duplass. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're definitely brothers, and I'm constantly forgetting which one I'm looking at. Um, yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah, that, that's not me just screwing up a name randomly. There's there's a reason to confuse them. It. Yeah. It's like a Tammy joke. It's like an onion. You get to keep digging deep and deeper. Every subsequent viewing, you notice something you didn't notice before. Unfortunately, Kelly One, I did not make $21 million this last weekend. Let's do a 3x3. Three three. Dingus, what is it? What inspired it? And what's off the table? <laughs> I thought you made Oh, that was last weekend. I'm sorry. Uh, it, it is uh, your favorite sunglasses and movies. Um, <laughs> what inspired it? Will I will talk about when I talk about my number two. Uh, wait, no, which one? When I talk about my number one, actually, I will talk about what inspired it, but I'd rather wait because um, it turns out my inspiration totally disappointed me this week. Uh, but I took off the table They Live. The, uh, uh, I took the They Live sunglasses off the table. Uh, I clearly did that last week. Um, I think all the listeners mentioned it anyway. Oh, I'm sure everybody will list, will yeah. list that, and I know at least one other that they definitely will mention, uh, a science fiction movie. But you can't... Hey, 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 Dingus, whoa, whoa. I didn't whoa, say anything. Just... I'm just saying that... Uh, that right. this, You've just, you just outed one of my... The science fiction Dingus. movie they live is off the table. That's what I just said. But we can still use Geordi's little things that he wears in Star Trek Next Generation. <laughs> Absolutely. You can use... Uh, sunglasses? Lieutenant Commander Geordi yeah. LaForge's uh, oil filter that he wears on his face. <laughs> Oh, that. <laughs> that's not an oil. That's an air filter. I don't know if you've ever seen an oil filter. I have. Filter I've changed them. <laughs> I've, I've been on top of that. You just confused an oil filter and an air, air filter. Didn't I you? actually had. I actually wore one of those to a costume party. I, I bought one at the uh, auto shop. I cut it in half and and put it on my face and went as Lieutenant Commander George LaForge. Lieutenant Commander Tom, you hear that? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know that yeah. was his rank. I, I don't so know I if did, it is, I, but I just like saying Lieutenant Commander. Lieutenant Commander. Tinkus and I had a conversation uh, recently. This was in earnest about when did Han Solo become a captain? When did who become a captain? Han Solo. Yeah. Oh. Uh, he's a captain. He's got. He's well, like he became a, a general like, for getting frozen. That was his. Was Wait, his, he's a general. Uh, general oh general Solo, you're right. So, Jeez. Oh my God. What are we doing talking about and this? Okay. Okay. <laughs> general too for betraying you. You thought you. Kelly, what? It is your uh, three by three next week. a twig. I'm just saying. <laughs> you get to start us off this week. Oh. Uh, what is your third favorite pair of sunglasses in a movie? My number three is from the film Fast Times at Ridgemont High, where um, that there was like a cheating a test montage, and one of the kids used like the inside of his sunglasses to like put the answers on, which I thought was brilliant, and I co-opted that technique, and here I am with the BA. That's where you got where you are today. All right. Uh, who was the kid? Who was play? Was this uh, uh, Judge Reinhold, Sean Penn, Phoebe Cates? Maybe. Oh who my god! It? I wish she doesn't need to cheat on tests to get it. 
Isn't Anthony Edwards in Fast Times at Ridgemont That's High? That's gotcha. Yeah, but isn't Anthony Edwards in Fast Time at Richmond? That's Vision Quest. Oh, no! Nicholas, high beams. Uh, Nicholas Cage is in Fast Times at Richmond High. Did you guys know that? Uh... Well, trivia for you. That's true. It, yep, he's, he's at the fast food restaurant where uh, Judge Reinhold gets fired. That's a true fact. That's a true bit of extra? trivia. Uh, I don't. He may not even have a line, but he's definitely working that fast food restaurant. I read the book of that, and I, it was really good. Cameron Crowe wrote it. Did you know that, Tom? I did not know that. I think your trivia might have trumped of mine. It, it, it's him. He he went to that school. <laughs> he he went to that school for a year. That's how he did the research. Undercover. But yeah. it's a really good book. It's like Twenty One Jump Street. <laughs> uh. Well, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's true. My number three favorite pair of sunglasses in a Tom. movie. <laughs> this is this is this began as I think it's product yeah it's product placement for gargoyle sunglasses. Um, so sunglasses normally make people look cool, and that's why you wear them in a movie. Kelly Wan's number three, for example, they're functional to cheat on a test. Um, I like sunglasses that you uh, don't wear to look cool, um, <laughs> and in this particular, you're not wearing them for that reason. Unfortunately, these sunglasses, these gargoyle sunglasses look cool, but the character isn't wearing them because they look cool. He's wearing them to hide the fact that he's got a messed up robot eye and that he can't go out in public with a messed up robot eye because people will know he's a robot. So, it's you know, contrast this to, and hopefully I'm not scooping anybody's list, you know, in The Matrix, everybody's wearing sunglasses because they just want to look cool. But in The Terminator... In the Terminator, he's wearing sunglasses because he has a messed up robot eye that he has to hide. The fact that he looks cool, too, beside the point. That's on accident. Uh, the Terminator is all about, at least in the first movie, is all about functionality. For instance, maybe you guys don't remember this, the reason he's wearing a cool leather jacket is because the first folks that he meets Bikers. are these biker punks uh, led by Bill Paxton, and he takes their clothes. He doesn't. He's not partial to you know, if he came upon uh, a, a traveling company of, of like the the cast of cats, yeah, for instance, he would be wearing a cat outfit. That whole or mimes. So what would he do? He would be wearing like black and white face and stuff. He would have that whole, and you might have like a. What about a nudist colony? <laughs> then, well, that's where they, then he would just blend in normally because he's already naked. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that's one of the things I like <laughs> about those Terminator sunglasses is he's not wearing them to look cool. That's just – he's got to hide his robot eye. But later, the movies became about, oh, how can we make Arnold yeah. look cool? And they briefly play on it. I forget which one where he goes into – is it like a, a women's strip club? And he borrows the clothes from a stripper and these, these like uh, gaudy sunglasses. Yeah, like pink sunglasses. But they don't have the courage, by the way, in that movie for him to wear them throughout the movie. Uh, so that's my number three pick is the Terminator sunglasses. Uh, I always thought in the Matrix they were wearing the sunglasses because that's how they viewed. It got they didn't have to see Matrix lingo like it was like translating the environment like a like an anti virtual reality. No, they right, so used to spell off the Matrix. They're going to see the Matrix. Is that what well, you're saying, Kelly Warren? I just assumed there was function to it. The way Liam Neeson assumed that the Jedi Knights used the Force to turn on their lightsabers and there wasn't a button. Well, they so. mess around with the reflections in the Matrix sunglasses a lot. But they never get dinged or anything. Like they get shot elsewhere, but never in the sunglasses. That's the Matrix for you. 
Dingus, what's your number three favorite pair of movie sunglasses? Uh, I can't believe you repeated Terminator again, Tom. You, you, what? What do you mean? Repeat Terminator of that. before. For rescues? You know, for, yeah. It's not my fault. It's not my fault that the Terminator is an iconic sim uh not Semitic. What's the what's the uh uh seminal <laughs> that the Terminator is a seminal iconic movie. It's not Semitic, by the way. I don't think I just it is. can't believe it's it's you're using something you've used before. Semiotic? What are you Wait, talking we about? We have to do that. Oh right, right, right. Dingus Dingus who's gonna mention Midnight Run at some point or Rush. Right, so here's a quote from my right, number right. three. Uh, can I ask Midnight you something? Run. These sunglasses, they're really nice. Are they uh, the government issued or are they government issued, Agent Mosley? Or Mosley? all you guys get them at the same store? Are you going to propose? So yeah, of, no, of course it's Midnight Run. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I forgot about that. Does he take classes? He just goes. No, a character named Mosley. Yeah, Alonzo Mosley. It played by. Yeah, Fat Cotto. Um, so uh, so uh, Jack Walsh gets in the back of the is forced in the back of the car. And all the FBI agents are sitting around him with sunglasses on, and he goes, "These sunglasses—they're really nice. Do you guys get them with this? I mean, do you guys, are they government issued, or do you guys go to the same store to get them?" And all the sunglasses look different. Um, but he's specifically talking about, you know, Alonzo Mosley's sunglasses. But the point is, he gets out of the car, and he asks for his sunglasses back because they've taken them away to put him in the car, but they're all still wearing their sunglasses. So as <laughs> as they drive away, they toss his sunglasses in the air, and he bobbles them and drops them in the street. Uh, and he picks them up and he's like, ah, you know, he's kind of mad at them. But during that whole thing, you know, when he's been messing with them about their sunglasses, he's lifted Alonzo Mosley's FBI badge. And he does this little pose in the street where like Alonzo Mosley, FBI. But then later, there's this great moment uh, at the Chicago bus station uh, when they steal an FBI car um, and they realize it's Alonzo Mosley's FBI car. And they find out, oh, all these things about what's going on in the investigation. Um, and he pulls the car over to leave it. And uh, Charles Grodin's character, who is, I know you guys love this name, Jonathan Mardukas, um, <laughs> says, Mardukas, I no. A... I, love, I love that comic strip about that big old I know, I know you love Mardukas. that. I know uh, Hobbs is the tiger. He's like, what, what are you doing? And he's like, how far do you think we're going to get a stolen FBI car? And then he takes his sunglasses out and he props them up so neatly on the steering wheel. Just his own sunglasses, he props them right there. And, uh, and Charles Grodin's, you know, Jonathan Mardukas says, what are you doing? And he goes, it's a personal joke between me and Alonzo. And I love that moment where he puts his own sunglasses right there on the steering wheel, just as a little joke between him and Alonzo. So, Dingus, I'm a little disappointed that you discovered this week that Midnight Run does not hold up. You're what? Saying. That's what you. Yeah. So I know he said he watched something for the three by three, and that he would he would mention it. He would tell me about it on the podcast, but he said, "Yeah, I watched something this week for the sunglasses thing," and it turns out it really didn't. Nothing hold he up. just said suggested so he thought that. So, but yeah, that's that's what you're saying to us, Dingus. That's what you're now going to explain to us is that Midnight Run doesn't hold up. That you watched it this week. Um, that's what I'm saying. I finally have come to the conclusion that Midnight Run is a horrible. Movie. Uh, now I want to see it. See if he's crazy. Because I remember liking it okay when I saw it. But it's really bad. It's terrible. It's really? Wait, what? Crazy. It's it's got terrible music. I don't know. I finally, this time seeing it, the twentieth or twenty fifth time, it's ter- It's a terrible movie. I don't know what I've. Did seen. you watch it with? someone who didn't like it did that happen okay you just suddenly on the 25th viewing by chance you suddenly went i was crazy the other 24 times 
Kelly Wan, sometimes when you watch a movie, you realize finally, like, wait a minute, this yeah. isn't yeah, And it's good. always a bummer. I, I, so I kind of feel bad for Dingo, like he lost something precious. Yeah, but like sad. the thing, I would always, or Jaws, it's like, it somehow always holds up. Like it, well, of course, right. But, that, yeah. Are we going to be talking about any of those later? No, but it is, I'm just, I never thought you'd turn on Midnight Run. Like now anything's possible. It's fucking yeah. Game of Thrones, yo. You could turn on Hunt for Red October. You could turn on Rushmore. It's just a fucking... Wait a minute. Do you, Dingus would turn on Seaman Beaumont? Look Never. how close he already is. Jonathan Mardukas, yes. Seaman Beaumont, no way. Kelly Wan, what's your number two favorite pair of movies? My number two is from... Okay, I'm going to do a line from it. <clears throat> you have the right to remain silent. <clears throat> oh, good lord. Really? What? Are you choosing Cobra? Fuck yeah. Jesus. Let me just say... Cobra is a fucking great character. He wears sunglasses the whole movie. He wears them into the grocery store to get the shooters while he chews a match and he drinks beer because he knows depth perceptions for faggots. That's what that character is trying to say. Huh. Just quoting yeah, But if you're the disease, what huh. is he? He's the Curebretti. Because remember, his name's Cobretti. Yeah. He doesn't just call himself Cobra because his guns happen to have those logos on it. He just Remember that got, awesome car that he can just shift into a yeah, and they, at any moment. <laughs> yeah, and they and the cop he he when he gets onto the scene, like all the cops jump out of the way because he's gonna barrel them down. Yeah, like you do. Cobretti. So it's like where Tom said, Oh, you just wear it to look cool, but obviously in Cobra's case, he doesn't even need him to look cool. He's just adding it. <laughs> do you remember seeing that movie in a theater? Yeah. Remember <laughs> the cult where they uh it's that he's taking on, it's like they all bang. Like, there's like businessmen banging sledgehammers and like these hellish seller stuff. Yeah. Those are the bad guys. Yeah. There's the liberal Man, order. Oh my God, who, who directed uh, I thought he did. No. It's so dumb. Oh, Remember like the guys, the, ga- the gang of toughs uh, are in his parking space. So he like shoves them out of the way with his car and then they like wash his car for him because he's so tough. Yeah, yeah, I totally remember. I just remember him being able to drive and shift that into reverse at a moment's notice. He's got to save Les- Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> What's her name? Virginia. Yes. I wish it had been Leslie Nielsen. If that had been a romantic interest, that would have been awesome. Nielsen. I thought- well, Bridget Nielsen is Leslie Nielsen's daughter. Yeah, of course. You can tell. <laughs> and Connie <laughs> Nielsen is, is their, their cousin. <laughs> she wrote Pippi Longstocking novels. That's it. <laughs> Huh, Cobra. All right, Kelly Wand. Boy, yeah, those sunglasses, those are... Uh, those See that awesome. movie? No, I've never seen that. And for, for matchsticks, we will also choose this. Or was that a toothpick in his mouth? It's a match. Right. I'm looking at the poster here. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Next it's a match. Matchsticks. Next three, but... And I bet there's some climactic moment in the movie where he uses it to light the bad guy on fire. That would have been way awesomer than what does happen. Oh, I'm sorry. I think he that. uses it to... He, like, stabs the guy with him. <laughs> hey, I'll like take that. Like, shoot him up. And then kills him with the sunglass. Like My number two favorite pair of sunglasses, and this is going to be really obscure. Maybe Kelly Wand knows huh. this one. Um, this isn't a good movie. Uh, I recently rewatched it. Uh, it's, it's, I think it's 76, 75, something here. like that. Uh, and I'd seen it, not when it was in theaters, but shortly, you know, I'd seen it when it ran on TV. It's Oliver Reed and Karen Black. It's basically a pre-Shining movie uh, called Burnt Offerings. 
Um, and they, there are a couple, they move into this like a haunted house. You don't know what's going on with it. And it eventually drives the house ends up like sapping your life force and killing everyone. And then one person becomes the curator in the house, uh, until the next family moves in. Um, so it starts possessing Karen Black, and then eventually it takes her over, and it kills Oliver Reed. It kills their son. Uh, but there's a point, and there's all these weird things that happen, like a tree comes alive and attacks them and keeps them from leaving the house. And there's a weird thing where the swimming pool tries to drown the boy. Uh, and there's just freaky things in it that now I don't think hold up. I don't think it's a very good movie, but freaked me out completely as a kid. There is, however, one thing that really holds up in this movie. And I don't quite know why it is, but I think it's the sunglasses. Uh, Oliver Reed's character has a dream. He has this fever dream where he remembers as a child at I think like his mother's funeral. It's some character plot point. The chauffeur for the car that he gets put in. And the chauffeur is just a guy in a chauffeur suit. He's, he's a thin fellow. Actually, fairly gaunt fella. Um, but he's wearing these sunglasses. And there's nothing weird about them. It's just a, a chauffeur wearing sunglasses who has this eerie grin. And if you have ever seen this movie, I can almost guarantee you know what I'm talking about. Because it later, he appears in the house as this manifestation that freaks out Oliver Reed. But it's it's just this this grinning chauffeur who would normally look completely normal, but he's scary because of the dark sunglasses. And what makes him scary is because, just like in a monster movie, if you have a movie about a monster and you don't show people that monster, they're going to imagine the most frightening monster conceivable, so that once you show them the monster, they're usually going to be disappointed. <laughs> because they're going to be like, oh, well, what I was imagining was way scarier than whatever this is that's on the screen. The, the beauty of this grinning chauffeur is that you know this guy has crazy scary eyes. He is insane or he's a demon or there's something freaky going on with his eyes behind those sunglasses and you never get to see it. It is only what you can imagine and that's as bad as it can possibly be. Uh, so I just think those weird scenes with the chauffeur in burnt offerings where you never see the chauffeur's eyes but you're left to imagine how absolutely crazy they must be uh, is super scary. Uh, for me. So I, I think if you were to just Google burnt offerings chauffeur, you would see a picture of this guy. Kelly Wan, does that, does that, do you remember that at all? I don't all? remember the chauffeur. Okay. Uh, it's in a dream sequence, and then later on he sort of appears in the house, but uh, yeah. Uh, are you sure you're not but thinking you, of the Deborah Foreman chauffeur movie? What is that? My chauffeur. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm thinking of Driving Miss Daisy. Uh, burnt offerings, that was a TV movie. No, oh, no, I don't think so. Wait, so the chauffeur, that means the car is also possessed? Maybe it is, Kelly Wand. Uh, maybe it, the car is what? Maybe that's why I saw it on TV, because it was a TV movie. Oh, was the car a movie movie? Yeah, the car was definitely a theatrical release. Does the car have the a chauffeur? No, no, Evil drives the car. What? Evil drives the yeah. car? <laughs> There's no sunglasses wearing chauffeur driving the car. So when um, evil drives the car, it spe- it like tur- it signals with its arm. Yeah, because it it doesn't uh, have that's a license the, and registration. Kelly, one, you're thinking of the evil that drives the dual truck. Because mm. you do see in Duel, another killer vehicle movie, you do see the driver's arm waving Dennis Weaver. Yeah, Dennis waving Weaver. Dennis Weaver past. So there's somebody. There's an arm. There's something with an arm inside the dual truck. The car. There's nothing in it. Because when James Brolin. Like, he corners it, and he walks up to it, and the door opens, and he looks inside and realizes, hey, there's no one there. And then it knocks him out and escapes. 
Um, the car definitely has no driver, even though I love this. You do see car view, like you do get uh, car POV shots in the car. Um, even though, wait, so does the car have a gas pedal, or does it just go as fast? Does it doesn't need a pedal because it doesn't have a driver. Shouldn't have a question. wheel either because it doesn't need the wheel. I think there is a wheel in there because when James Brolin looks in, he sees it. I'm pretty sure he sees it. it looks like a normal car interior, and he just realizes, "Hey, there's nobody in." All the parts, it wouldn't need wheels or even a car. It could just run around uh, as evil. I mean, it's using a car, so yeah, it has all that stuff. Yeah, it could just be a giant weight going around smashing people. <laughs> it wouldn't be anywhere near as scary. I, I told you guys well, that's that not that scary to you. Like, <laughs> it's evil, evil, evil drives the a car. At least, oh, yeah. Go, I'll just get up on top oh. of the. The car can't chase me up a skyscraper, neither can Jaws the shark. Fuck you. But if a weight can follow Tell it, me. You obviously have not seen the car because it can chase you up a skyscraper. It can? Like it can get you inside of a house. If it can get you inside of a house, it can get you in a skyscraper. That's terrifying. No one's ever scared of skyscrapers, though. Uh, someone once told me that the car is someone I wanted. I was like, hey, I love this movie when I was a kid. I've got a copy of it. Let's watch this. She later ruined it for me by remarking that it looked like a lowrider mobile. Uh, uh, like it looks like something you'd see driving around East L.A. It's like, no, it's a demonic thing. It's not a Chicano thing. It does not thing. look like a lowrider, but the, we, the, you, the windows are just so so not narrow. They're just so tight, narrow. They're so tiny. The, the, That's what she was saying is it looks like a chopped down. Yeah, like something yeah but the wheels, it's not lowrider wheels. I mean, come on. Thank you, Dingus. I agree with right. you. Uh, Dingus, what's your second favorite pair of sunglasses? <laughs> Wait, I didn't disagree with Dingus. <laughs> Why you got to say it like that? You people. Why you got to say it like that? Why, got, why can't you be happy for Dingus? Huh. All right. So also, I forgot to say about uh, Midnight Run because I know you guys are tired of talking about that. Uh, there's a payoff at the end where Alonzo returns the sunglasses at the diner. Or I think Tracy Walter is uh, waiting. Anyway. What's the so, uh, uh, Haile Selassie. So anyway, here's a quote. Here's a little bit of dialogue from my uh, number two pick. Uh, yes, I'm with him. I'm, uh, I'm Mrs. Iglesias. No, this you're not. Oh. You're just out here, and you put sunglasses on. Out. He's obviously doing Channing Tatum's Hispanic accent from 22. That was his Irish accent. So it's with nail and I. <laughs> It's actually from a movie that I saw this week uh, called Bridesmaids, and it's when um, <laughs> sneaks into first class wearing sunglasses when she's drunk and high because of the um, the drugs that she's been given by uh, – what's her name? I forget. Ruth uh, – no, Rose Burns. From, um, oh. And she sneaks into first class wearing sunglasses and sort of walks down the aisle and sneaks into the seat next to this um, – Hispanic-looking gentleman who has uh, earphones on, and then the uh, the attendant tries to throw her out, and she says that she's Mrs. Inglacius. The attendant stove. Yes, stove. Uh, Stove's another name, Tom. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and and he, and he says, "No, you're not. You just you just came out here. You were just out here, and you put on sunglasses." out and i just love that in her state of being high she thought if i only put on sunglasses which is kind of a shakespearean kind of idea of like just put on a hat and everybody will think you're a man uh thing i love that i just and, and it was a kind of a nice surprise like i just watched bridesmaids to see melissa mccarthy doing something uh that i that i really really loved uh again uh and to watch the pacing of that movie and see how much tammy really kind of cribbed from it um uh, so watching her just sneak into the first class in those sunglasses is really great. 
Kelly One, do you feel that it's time for Dingus to give MacGruber another shot already? Did he even finish it? I don't know. But I feel that he, now that he can appreciate some of Chris, the Kristen finer points Wick. of Kristen Wiig, yeah, maybe he really needs to give MacGruber another chance. And also, he, you know, he loves Will Forte in uh, Nebraska. Yeah. Maybe it's time for him to give it another shot. That's a good point. I never got to the end of MacGruber, but I did pee on it. Hmm. See, Kelly Wand, if he's making jokes like that, I feel I like think he, he likes it, it more than he's willing to admit. Yeah. If he's I turned so on Midnight too. Run, it's a hop, skip, and a jump. As yeah. the scholars say, to um, what's the movie we're talking about? MacGruber. MacGruber. Yeah. Did Bridesmaids hold up, or was it another Midnight Run? Oh, it it holds up so well. Yeah, see, it's, it's so good. Uh, it's got such a great pacing. It's got so much good comic timing. It's got such a great balance of the cast. Oh, it's such a. Great I even movie. noticed. I too, because I, I, you know, when Dingus was watching, I couldn't help but, you know peek in the room and now we'd end up staying and watching some of it the scene that we talked about before uh you know when a when a, a movie knows when to draw something out mm-hmm. and when to let it go and when you can draw it out and make it funny which by the way that that bar scene from they came together that dingus mentioned classic example these guys have no idea what's funny so they think drawing something out for for literally like it's like 20 takes of the single line not the least bit funny wasn't funny the first time it's not going to be funny the 20th the a classic example of knowing something well enough and having enough self-awareness about the effectiveness of your humor that you can draw something out is that fantastic and i think it was dingus that called this out in an earlier podcast that fantastic uh speech scene in bridesmaids where Kristen wig is trying to top rose Byrne and vice versa when they're doing the bridesmaids speech at the, at the reception um that is so good and one of the things that struck me too re-watching that dingus is how well it's shot with little things like watching someone cross the screen to go back and grab the mic or a hand coming across the screen to grab the mic like so much of bridesmaids is it's not just acted and written well but just shot is so it all well. one shot no no no, 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 no. it yeah. definitely right. is cut around but you, you'll see things like okay christian wig's head ducking across the screen to get back up to the uh you know it's like it's like comedy and editing and composition yeah. to get back up there to where the microphone is uh and another thing too just because she's so freaking adorable and i felt so awful for the crap she had to put up with and they came together uh the reaction shots to uh, the acceptance, the dueling acceptance speeches. You know, it's mainly you're watching Maya Rudolph, but it's constantly framed where you can see the adorable Ellie Klimper in the background also and reacting. And you can see her. Per- you can see them perfectly. They're perfectly set up so that you can see all of their heads like you would set up yeah. a photo. You can see Ellie Kemper yeah. right there. You can see that weird dude who's her fiance. You can see all of their heads perfectly set up. It's just perfectly composed. Yeah. Wait, who directed uh, Bridesmaids? Yeah, Paul Weig. Weig. No, fake. You're right. Is Paul Fake. No, wait. Now I feel bad. Is it fake? It's F-E-I-G. I don't know how you say it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then um, they end up singing together, which again reminded me oh, yeah. of <laughs> them singing in front of the eagle. And I just felt like, ugh. Uh, but I love them singing at the end of that scene in Bridesmaids. But when she eats that candy, too, when she wants, she's a super queasy. <laughs> They hold on that forever, and it no, couldn't go on. It couldn't go on long enough. It's perfect. I'm just yeah. a, a little hungry. <laughs> <laughs> See, they know what they're doing. That's what's but, but, missing but, from Tammy is that comic timing. Melissa McCarthy is so good in this. Yeah, bridesmaids. I don't know. I, mean, I, I don't want her to have to play that level part. I mean, I want her to be the lead in the movie. I want her to be able to 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 open a movie. I mean, that's fine with me. She's such a great talent. But just watching what she does in that, I mean, you just get a sense of, boy, she can do so much. 
Well, I, I would let her to see her do something that's not a comedy. I mean, that's yeah. not where she's not trying well, to be yeah, that out, yeah. outrageous. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to reach into your pocket, I'm going to take your keys, and I'm going to drive to your house. Like that whole riff right. from The right. Heat that we made fun of. I would love to see her do just a movie as a, as a really, as an actress who has that quality of sincerity and vulnerability we talked about, where it's not playing on just the outrageousness of, you know, how crazy she can be. Um, and, and Bridesmaids, to its credit, does some yeah. of that. Like Bridesmaids gives yeah. her the serious, you know, what would normally be the sappy redemption moment is is all about Melissa McCarthy not being funny, you know, not making jokes. Um, and she's sort of an une- like she reveals unexpected deaths, and yeah. she's supposed to be yeah. the crazy one. Yep. Um, see, that character makes perfect sense. In Tammy, I honestly don't know what she's supposed to be. Well, you know what, listeners, if you were skipped the Tammy part of the podcast, go back and listen to that, and we talk like, about it. I would like there. to see her in Dead Man Walking with Suzanne Sarandon, and she plays the Sean Penn part. <laughs> Suzanne Sarandon. I want to see her as Bond. Sorry, Susan. <laughs> <laughs> like a wo- Kelly Wand, what's your favorite pair of sunglasses in a movie? My number one is in the film um, uh, Weekend at Bernie's. That's perfect. That's awesome. That's all right, well I've done. Seen. All right, yeah. you win. You win. Fine. Can you give us any information about the, uh, the where character it is, is dead, but there <laughs> people do not know that he's dead. So, right. and the fact that he's wearing sunglasses means he can't be dead. So, like, oh, because then they can't see that his eyes are closed because he's yeah. dead. Yeah. So even like the his ex girlfriend or his girlfriend has sex with him and doesn't know he's dead. So is this the first weekend in Bernie's or one of the sequels? There's only two total the trilogy okay. they're still working on the script for the third one all right who are the main actors in uh andrew, andrew mccarthy from mannequin andrew mccarthy right. and jonathan silverman from ah Rachel what's Silverman. what's he been up to lately is he is he is he too busy with his career to do weekend of bernie's three uh i think everyone is okay did you know that in the when they were filming the sequel it was when the riots happened in la i did not were they shooting it in la because if not, it wouldn't matter. Yeah. They were. And what, how did they work their way around that, Kelly? They just put on sunglasses, and then it fooled all the other races. Oh, I guess I like, about, I like your trivia about uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High being a book also. I like that trivia better. <laughs> just play came from for Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Kelly, are you ready for my favorite pair of sunglasses? I think you, Dingus, I think will, but not as much as you. I think you will appreciate this pair of sunglasses. You ready, Kelly? This usually is a preface to this was something really stupid I saw one time. (laughs) (laughs) The judge of that. So normally sunglasses, like I said, you wear them because they make you look cool. They make you look cool because they hide your eyes. Eyes Uh, aren't cool. These sunglasses, what is remarkable about these sunglasses is that they do not hide the character's eyes. And yet they're a staple of the character's appearance. They're hugely important to the character. And I like to think in a way the character thinks his eyes are hidden. But little does he realize, no, these are just yellow tinted sunglasses and we can totally see your eyes behind them. I love the fact that – and I guess this is just a Hunter S. Thompson thing. Throughout Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Mm. Johnny Depp's Hunter S. Thompson is wearing sunglasses – but we can see his eyes. You know, we can see those those big brown Johnny Depp eyes back there, and he's not being all dreamboaty, but he's doing crazy Hunter S. Thompson things with his eyes, and we can see it all. Um, but yet he's still wearing those sunglasses with that yellow tinting. Um, and what's remarkable is that uh, if you have uh, – actually, you can even find this on YouTube – 
the 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 ending of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is um God, I love the scene. I forgot how good this was. When uh, uh, Gonzo is with uh, Benicio del Toro and Johnny Depp go to this diner, and he's done in Las Vegas. They're about to leave, and Ellen Barkin is working there as someone who is described as a burnt-out Jane Russell lookalike. And she's got this cruel knife scar on her face, and Benicio del Toro ends up terrorizing her. And it's this moment of real cruelty in what has otherwise been uh, kind of a madcap movie. But has a romp, but hasn't really had that kind of cruelty. Um, and from there, he drops off uh, Gonzo at the at the at the airplane, and then he goes back to L.A. Uh, and that's how the movie ends: is him leaving his this you know imaginary or not this character, uh, parting ways with him, and then returning to the world of Los Angeles. And originally, however, there was a scene of him on the road to Los Angeles, stopping at a bar and getting a drink. And at the bar, he makes an inappropriate comment to the barkeep about his relationship with his granddaughter, and he presumably feels like an asshole. And then when he goes outside and he gets into his car, he sees some soldiers returning from the Vietnam War, and he flashes back on you know what's happened to them. Uh, and he drives off and says something to them like, God bless you, you crazy bastards. Uh, and that's how it ends. But for, for whatever reason, and I think Terry Gilliam might have said something to this effect on the commentary track – they cut this scene, and one of the things that they cut is that when he goes into this bar to get a drink, he takes off his sunglasses, and it looks really weird and out of place um, because it highlights this this kind of nakedness and vulnerability that he seems to think the sunglasses obscure. You know, he seems to think he's hiding behind these sunglasses, and he's not because we can still see his eyes. But when he actually takes them off, it's weirdly intimate. Uh, and I, I like to think, I don't know if I'm misremembering this, but I like to think that somewhere on the commentary track, Terry Gilliam says that that just didn't work, and that's why the movie didn't end with that scene. Um, but I love those sunglasses throughout. I love that you can see through them, uh, and I love how weird it is in that deleted scene when he takes them off. Um, that seems like an important scene. Um, it is, but you kind of don't need it, because there's so much you can sort of infer about the, the 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 Las Vegas self-containedness of it. You know, once he drives out of the Las Vegas city limits, and that's where the credits roll. You know all you need to know. You know he has a brief voiceover about going back to Los Angeles, but you don't need explicit information about how he feels alienated from the rest of America, which is I think what it gets at when he makes the inappropriate remark to the barkeep when he sees the people coming back from the war. I mean, I think you can infer all that already. Well, it's um, also without his sunglasses, he's not really. Hunter Thompson. He's it's Johnny Depp saying those things. But it's not that. That's the thing. Is I, I, you know, when we saw Transcendence, one of the questions we raised, and I forget if this was the answer, is, you know, what were we thinking that we were expecting this movie to be cool? When is the last time Johnny Depp really turned in a good performance? Does Pirates of the Caribbean work? Because he's just kind of swaggering and being outrageous in that. And I really do think the last time he's turned in a good performance was Fast um, a Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, because he's phenomenal yeah. in that. And, uh, and and it is – yeah, when the glasses come off, I'm glad that that's not in there because uh, we could – and even when the glasses come off, like I said, you can't see it's Johnny Depp. I mean he's doing so much just really amazing physical work and you know with his, his, his head shaved bald like that, it definitely is not a Johnny Depp looking kind of thing. Um, well, you, you bring up Pirates of the Caribbean and he's kind of doing an impression in that. Right, um, right. Well, and do, and do yeah. you that, get a sense – I mean I'm, I love Fear and Loathing but I don't know – the source material well enough to know is he just doing an impression? 
he is but well not only is he i wouldn't say he's just doing an impression he's definitely doing an impression and you know there's this idea that he lived on one of hunter s thompson's he lived on some of his property and studied him for a month or whatever like i i always think that that kind of stuff is they make Talk that up for good copy eh, a part, well, he found the rum diary of, it's just publicity it's part of the publicity yeah it's publicity like hey, i lived in hunter s thompson's house and i wore some of his clothes for the movie whatever if that's what he does for his technique that's fine but more to the point, I, it is an impression dingus, but it's so committed because the way Terry Gilliam shoots, he shoves a camera into your face. You know, you are – Terry Gilliam shoots very intimate scenes and they're – you know, if you're being – if there's any disingenuous stuff going on or any sort of over-the-top stuff that doesn't work or there's a real intimacy to the madcapness, uh, to the insanity uh, – that Terry Gilliam manages to capture from Johnny Depp. So he is doing a very clearly a Hunter S. Thompson impression, but there's a lot of conviction and a lot of really good performance there. Um, so I wouldn't say just doing an impression, but doing an impression and also really channeling a character that even if you don't know who Hunter S. Thompson is, you would watch this and think, man, this Johnny Depp guy is really good, really committed. And by the way, same with Benicio Del Toro. Yeah. You know, their relationship in that. Um, he said he based so, his Ed Wood on uh, Reagan. Then I thought about it. Yeah, I, I can see what he's saying. But it's like he made that decision. So, yeah. uh, Ed Wood predates uh, Fear and Loathing, right? Doesn't it? Uh, I can't remember. Right. It's somewhere in there. But I mean, even in stuff like Dark Shadows. Ew. Yes, I don't think it's him. It's, it's me as usual, like giving the actor the free pass, but it's like. You say you don't think it's him, or what, what do you. Well, I'm saying I don't think he sucks in Dark Shadows. Mm, I do. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's not good in The Tourist. I think he sucks in that, too. Yeah. <laughs> I really don't think. I mean, I, but Tim I, Burton drags him down, man. You can't. Well, maybe when Tim Burton. Is Tim Burton doing Into the Woods? Is that Tim Burton? <sighs> is he? The, the movie of the musical. I think that's another oh, Tim Burton. Lord, is that happening? Really? I think so, isn't it? Or did I just I think make that up? Yeah, I was directing it. <laughs> oh, Kelly Warren. <laughs> I've had enough of your singing. I think I was directing it. Are you crazy? Uh-uh. <laughs> Dingus, what's your number one favorite pair of sunglasses in movies? <laughs> All right, well, this is the one that was inspired by um, the one the movie that failed me this week. Uh, Another one fails. It, was, it, for Dingus. it wasn't Midnight Run. Uh, it, they, when I, re- you know, I've got this long list of uh, three by three ideas that I go to uh, every week when we're gonna, you know, when I when I'm gonna come up with the topic. And I've had this topic on on board for a while. And, and I I had this idea a while ago. Um, now how do you, how would you guys say this word? Is it is it implacable or implacable? It's, I think it's implacable. It's implacable. Uh, it's implacable. implacable. Yeah. Um, so I, I watched uh, the movie that that inspired this a long time ago uh, because this particular character, and it's a minor character in this movie, but I had this this remembrance of this guy and his sunglasses and how important it was to the scene or how, how much I thought it was important to the scene. And it turned out to be just a total waste of time. Um, <laughs> and it was the, the movie I'm talking about is, is Thelma and Louise. Uh, it's terrible. Uh, it's, it's much worse than I remember it being. I, I remember loving Thelma and Louise, but it just does not work. It's, it's horribly directed. Uh, it's beautifully shot. Um, Dingus, I would invite you to recall this is the director of Prometheus. You're talking I know, about. and I feel terrible about that because we all love and Robin Hood so much. But there's there's this this cop 
who pulls them over, uh, and he's just got these cop sunglasses on. And I just love that sort of implacable cop sunglass look as he goes up to their car, and he's so tough. And you can't – I mean, he, he's just got that look about him. And then as soon as he gets those glasses off – uh, he he kind of withers, uh, but but it's oh. kind of part of the scene, and it's I, I mean the, the movie just doesn't just does not for me hold up at all. So so I scrapped it, and I just started thinking. But there was that same image, and I couldn't get it out of my head of 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 that sort of implacability of of a cop wearing sunglasses, and and finally. Well, can I can I guess what you were probably thinking? No, of? but I, but let, let me first read. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me let me read the because I went ahead and go ahead, Tom. What, what were you going to guess? Well, I, it, it's, I don't want to scoop you, but I mean, I think the one of the the iconic expressions of that is the third Terminator, the the liquid Terminator, oh. like the Robert Patrick Terminator's constantly got the glasses on. He's got oh, liquid yeah. metal sunglasses. Yeah, I mean I, that's just what they're playing with is Robert Patrick being so non-expressive <laughs> in, in Terminator the Two. Cops, but that's please. not what you were thinking. The Cop Vacation, you can't say. Dumb and Dumber. Okay. I forgot that. Yeah, I forgot that. That's actually a, a very good one, too. But that's not what you were thinking. No, of. actually, what I was thinking of was a much older movie. Um, and it was weird because I was thinking of this movie, uh, Tell and Louise, which is, I think, from 1986 or 1987. Um, and it's on Instant Watch now. And I went and watched it. And it's really disappointing to watch it again. Um, but Susan Sarandon's in it. So there you go. He's another disappointment. Oh, oh, you're talking about Tom and Louise. Films Louise, right? Yeah, uh, grand. No, um, but I, you know, I went and watched uh, this particular. Some of the I couldn't watch this whole movie again, but I've seen it many times. Uh, so wait, just to be clear, you're not picking Tom and Louise. Oh no, 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 no. You're about See, to I do that, everyone gets bad at me. But all right, go on. Yeah, I know, but but. No one's going to pick Thelma and Louise Kelly Wan for best sunglasses. Plus, he's explaining to us how he got where he's going. Plus, I'm, I'm the last pick in the in the string, so I, I feel comfortable mentioning how I got to this point. Yeah, it won't. He will not be scooping your Cobra pick. <laughs> Cobra. <Kelly Wand. laughs> so um, I could I could give you a quote, but I'm not going to do that. Instead, I went I went and sort of read some of the script for this, and I love the character description of this particular scare, uh, this particular character from the script. You guys, I think you'll know what I'm talking about when I read this description to you. So, uh, so let me go ahead and read it from the script. Uh, Angle passed Boss Godfrey to Boss Shorty. Godfrey is the walking boss, silent, implacable symbol of ultimate judgment. He wears a black hat, globular mirrored sunglasses, the man with no eyes, impassive, emotionless, he nods to Boss Shorty. Roger Rabbit? <sighs> Damn it. Get Shorty. Is it a Coen Brothers movie? Uh, no. Nose Crossing. Wait, there's no, no sunglasses in that shit. Um, sunglass, the movie? Uh, no, it's it, the key is, and Tom's, it, what, when Tom started talking about um, Fear and Loathing, and uh, what I love, I'm so glad Tom brought up Fear and Loathing, because, uh, because the difference between uh, this pick and Tom's pick is that um, you can see Johnny Depp's eyes, and that's really, really important in Fear and Loathing, um, that he feels like he's hidden, but he's not. Uh, this particular character um, is referred to as the man with no eyes in the script uh, because his eyes, his sunglasses are perfectly mirrored. Like you expect like that perfect cop sunglasses to be perfectly mirrored. And this is the, the walking boss in cool hand Luke. Um, this is the guy. Uh, that's a good one. 
you see him you see his face in the in the opening credits i mean basically the the director stuart rosenberg's name is i, I think uh, like plastered on his sunglasses at the beginning and and he is this this force that just moves through the movies and you can the movie and you cannot see his eyes you cannot penetrate what is going on uh, and i just I love those those glasses. So when when Thelma Louise completely failed me, I just spent the, the next couple of days just racking my brain, thinking about, well, what am I going to do? I mean, I know I have this image in my head of this police officer with with these perfect mirrored sunglasses who won't let you see his eyes, and he uses that as an intimidation factor. And the walking boss in Cool Hand Luke perfectly does that for me. Kelly, I want to have a question for you. Has Dingus cheated? By resorting to reading the script for a movie. Uh, I mean, it's no weekend at Bernie's, but Cool Hand Luke, sure, into that kind of <laughs> shit. <laughs> but he's also up against Paul it's... Newman's eyes, too. So it's like the man with no eyes versus Paul Newman eyes. Yeah, the man with Paul God, Newman's Do you guys yeah. remember how brutal that movie is? Yeah, it's awesome. Remember that girl? <laughs> it is just so brutal. I mean, Paul Newman just gets kicked up. Yeah. Off of the uh, I think he's got it way worse than Towering Inferno. <laughs> what? <laughs> Damn it, Tom. Dingus, I'm surprised you didn't mention, I thought you were going to bring up Enemy. Jake Gyllenhaal well, no, shopping you, for sunglasses. You blew that for me earlier in the week, you jerk. No, nope, I was going to bring uh, that up. Kelly, you should have brought up Enemy. I love, I love those sunglasses. That sunglasses moment in Enemy is, I love the sunglasses he picks. But then you... It's a perfect, like, Jake Gyllenhaal is such a schlub moment where he's like, Shopping for the glasses between the two racks. And, it's such yeah, a perfect picture, too. Him standing there between the two racks wearing those ridiculous sunglasses. Oh, I love that. Uh, Dingus, what are the listeners have All right. For us? Well, we've got uh, Paul Weimer. Uh, hi, guys. I'm glad Dingus did take They Live Off the Table. It was too easy, number one, for me. So here are three more great uses of sunglasses. I'm going to try and avoid two obvious franchise choices, though. Uh, number three, in Hot Fuzz... Oh God! Oh, here we go. Everybody loves these uh, corning right. trilogy or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> corning? What? Isn't that what he calls the corning oh, trilogy? Right. What is it? It's some sort of ice cream yeah. trilogy or something. Yeah. Uh, putting on sunglasses are used as a marker of character change for Simon Pegg's Nick Angel, as he goes from despondent to determined to find out what's going on in the little town he's been assigned to. Number two. <laughs> In the original X-Men movie, oh. we learn just why Cyclops, James Marsden, needs to wear those sunglasses as an attack in a train station that causes him to lose them, causes so much collateral damage as Magneto's mutants manage. That was one of my alts. Uh, oh, and number one, what we have here, boy, is failure to communicate. Uh, oh. Boss Godfrey, Morgan Woodward, in Cool Hand Luke with memorable mirror shades that are an essential part of his character – the destruction mm-hmm. of those glasses at the end of the movie is a powerful one, rife with symbolism. Best regards, Paul Weimer. Thank you, Paul. Excellent. Good. Your number one was awesome. I don't know where you got that. Uh, Simon Ezers. <laughs> uh, hi, guys. Moderately long-time listener, first-time 3 by 3 contributor here. Welcome, Simon. I'm pretty sure that as soon as I hear the other picks in next week's podcast, I'll be wondering why I didn't think of them myself, but I guess such is life. Anyways, here's my list mostly focused on practical applications rather than aesthetics. Uh, number three, Cyclops Visor X-Men. Yay. <laughs> Not sunglasses. Because it, in, it inverts the usual function of sunglasses to protect the wearer's eyes from the outside world and instead serves to protect the outside world from the wearer's eyes. 
PS Quartz. Yes, not my pick, but sort of related are the hideously ugly sunglasses he's wearing at the beginning of X-Men 3, which clearly serve the function of making the viewer think he's had it coming when he later gets killed by evil Jean Grey. Yeah, that's a good point, and they see the sunglasses floating. Uh, uh, can I tell a, a stupid little story? That uh, Was it Simon Dingus who just wrote yeah, that? Yeah, Simon Esters. That Simon made me think of? So uh, I, the last time I got my eyes checked and I got a new subs- prescription for glasses was uh, many Nerd. years ago. Uh, and I went to the eye doctor, and she was this incredibly attractive Asian woman. And I was like, <laughs> the whole time she's like checking my eyes and doing the little lenses. And the whole time I'm thinking, God, how do you... How do you like ask out your eye doctor? You know, I, I see anything course, you but, like. That's how I go. <laughs> Very good, Kelly Wand. Let me write anything that one on down. Top rows for you. <laughs> but at one point, she asked me. She's like, "Do you do you spend a lot of time outdoors?" And I said, "Well, no, not really." Um, but I do. You know, at that time, I was I was running regularly. I was like, "Well, I do." You know, run for like an hour or so a day. And she's like, "Do you wear sunglasses?" And I thought, "Here's my opportunity to impress her with how deep I am." I, actually, that wasn't even my conscious thought. I just like reeled off because here's this attractive woman talking. I like, well, I'll say something deep at this point. Here's deep. an opportunity. And I said something yep. to her. She said, you know, do you, do you wear sunglasses when, when you're running? And I said to her, I really don't like to wear sunglasses because I like to see a person's eyes when I'm talking to them. And she said to me, Perfect. she said to me, and, and this totally put me in my place. She said to me, well, you don't have to wear them when you're talking to people. <laughs> I mean, she's interested sexually. (laughs) But I just remember thinking, where did I think that was going to go when I said that line? (laughs) Well, now you know. Although you're you're talking to an eye doctor, so she's always, you're playing in her court. (laughs) Well, the fact that I never ended up going out. Crack your lenses. Grind your lenses. (laughs) What do they say? All right, so better here. When he just mentioned, when he, oh, very See. good, Kelly Wand. Uh, when he mentioned uh, sunglasses as protection, that's what I thought of. Is uh, she's well, I don't think he can use them like that, Tom. <laughs> Unless they're ribbed. Or I mean bifocals. Well, I mean, I don't think. Uh, Kathy Bates. <laughs> she's blind. I mean, gay. What? All right, so Dingus, what was Simon's oh, uh, yeah. number two? I forgot. We're doing stuff. I'm just waiting. Okay. Are we ready? All right, yes. number two. No more condom jokes? Are you sure? <laughs> That's not like the first one. Dude, you at the beginning of this podcast, you were... That's never- what she said? Tom, talk to him. Well, let me tell you, Kelly Wand, if I had a nickel for every That's What She Said reference from Dingus. How old is that, by the way? The office is like... It's got to be 10 years old. I'm sure in like the 10 years since Steve Carroll started saying it, Dingus has probably said it... 10,000 times. And he was making fun so, of it. Like it was the dumb character saying it. And now. And now. And now. Yeah. From 10 years ago. That was <laughs> exactly. old. Exactly. Exactly. This doesn't hold up at all. Thelma Louise. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Number two. Riddick's goggles. <laughs> oh. Oh. Wait, what, was what? Tom? No, what? Oh. What do you. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Terrible choice. Wait. What well, do you mean? Well, they're not sunglasses. Yeah. They're they like are. A, of course they are, because at night he can see fine. When the sun's out, it messes up his infravision. No, but I thought that's like a visor with a rubber strap on it. No, no, they're like climbers. They're like those goggles. It's like like mountain climbers have those with it, that have the, you know, the little leather seal around the edges. They're like that. Uh, no, that's a great yeah, pick. Yeah. Damn it, I'm jealous, Good. Simon. Because we loved the last Riddick movie. Did we? It. Did we love it? I mean, I well, did. Kelly wants to understand. Did, yeah. 
Yeah. See, see in the dark, so he wears glasses. Uh, wait, what? No, because he's got infravision, like an elf. In what do the glasses do then? If he already has them. They, have you not seen any Riddick movies? So it, I don't get it, it. In the, when it's bright, it's kind of like blinding to him. So during the day, he has to wear them. That's a shitty so that superpower then, because it's always day, and he's always on that desert planet for the whole movie, but he doesn't have them in that one. Yeah, he does. What do you t- What do you on about? He he, and he puts them on during the day in the How sun, the dog? and then at night he takes them off, and he can see just fine. Anyway, what does Simon have to say about this? Because it's an awesome pick, even if Kelly Wand is still confused I think, I think by, it's the, a great by the physics of light. Yeah, yeah I think stupid Riddick too. movies. <laughs> Riddick's goggles. Because as with stupid the example Riddick. above, because as with the example above, the idea of a character artificially neutering their talents, Riddick's permanent night vision See? case, appeals to me. That's the theory, at least. Actually, though, it's just that Vin Diesel trying to look badass wearing a tiny pair of goggles <laughs> is just so darn adorable. I call that logic shady. <laughs> and by the way, I think that Simon has the exact right take on Vin Diesel's Riddick yeah, character. Yeah, me too. He really is just so adorable trying to look really tough and gruff and super badass. It's it's just really endearing. <laughs> 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 All right, so Simon's number one, Kelly. You're love this. Oh. Judge Dredd's visor helmet. Ah. Not a glasses, not something. It's a visor. Wait a minute. Okay, in that case, I'm picking the the blast shield on Luke's uh, X-Wing helmet when he does the training. Can you chairs. see anything with the vi- when the blast shield's down, Tom? You can't. The targeting computer's sunglasses. Okay. <laughs> in the 2012 <laughs> movie where he doesn't take it off. Because it makes it almost impossible to perceive dread as a human being, reinforcing the notion that even if you make the quote-unquote right choice and decide to fight on the side of law and order, the movie's overcrowded dystopia is going to turn you into a monster sooner or later. What about Tuscan Raider Lupe uh, things? So Simon Simon says if that last one falls outside the boundaries of the topic, uh, just replace it with Top Gun. There are aviators in there. Ah. Oh, you know what? Good. Thank you, Simon. Yeah, because those, those are Already iconic sunglasses. Well yeah, Judge Dredd, Judge Dredd does not wear sunglasses. <laughs> all right. So uh, Simon says, uh, love the podcast and wish you all the best. Hold on. Kelly Wan, are you equating risky business sunglasses with Top Gun sunglasses? I'm equating both of them with Mission Impossible ones that blow up. The, sun, the aviator glasses in Top yeah. Gun, absolutely iconic. They they spawned an entire look. That was just uh, business. They're, they're assi- no, uh, Risky Business spawned people running around in their boxer shorts with socks on hard floors. That's fine. Oh, you know what? Maybe. Okay. But not as cool and badass as the Top Gun I sunglasses. I think that's a great By that entire line of reasoning. It's <laughs> a good point. <laughs> I mean, I just think the, the sort of the testosterone-fueled, you know, the masculinity of Top Gun, the sunglasses were a huge part of that. It was um, a huge part. Whereas in risky yeah. business, because it, when yeah. I was in high school, um, I had a, I had a couple of friends who got us all flight suits and those sunglasses so we could go to oh like my God. like costume parties as the Top Gun dudes. <laughs> it's like let's be cops, but I thought Dingus was just going to say go to school uh, wearing the flight suits and the sunglasses oh, yeah. in Every high school. I totally Dingus doing that in high school. And saluting each other. It was awesome. He doesn't try. Uh, I, I once tried to bring a cane with me to junior high, and it got taken away from me. The principal was like, no, you can't carry a cane around the school. I got, I got sent to the office, and the principal was like, no, you can't carry this around. <laughs> Took it away. Wait, what? Yeah, I just thought it would be cool to show up to seventh grade with a cane. 
it had a duck head on it. It was like something that was around the that house. Cool. And I think my grand- and, and the you know I got sent Why to the principal's office. The prin- <laughs> you got sent to the principal's office for, it for uh, having a duck head cane. What grade was the, this? The teacher, 11th? 7th grade. This was seventh, yeah, but <laughs> this was seventh to grade. be fair, it was a laser cane. Degas is referencing uh, Michael Sheen's character in Tron, one of the most unforgettable instances of weaponry in all of cinema. Michael Sheen's cane shoots lasers. Uh, it's awesome. By the way, um, boss, uh, the walking boss, uh, Boss Godfrey, in uh, Cool Hand Luke has a cane. And, and there's this awesome scene in, in early in the movie where he, he holds it up so that one of the prisoners has to run and get his rifle for him, and he shoots a bird. I mean, he does all these kinds of things with his cane in the movie, and you bring up the cane reminds me of that. That might have been what it inspired me in seventh grade, Nick. Inspired. <laughs> this will be cool. It's got a duck's head on it. Like the one that uh, kills werewolves in The Wolfman. Huh, Tom? What? Doesn't... Don't remember that cane. That how- save, Kelly, let's save that for the three by three of best canes. Oh, uh, I can't wait another week. <laughs> All right, next we have Josh. Mm. Uh, since sunglasses were banned here in Canada between the reigns of Diefenbacher nine and Mulroney three, the Molson Code years, they can only be hinted at in our underground film culture, which is ultimately why Brendan Fraser was forced to take his career to Hollywood. Anyway, favorite sunglasses. Uh, Wait, hold on a second. Brendan Fraser is Canadian? Yeah, I hung out with like his cousin. Oh, wow. Josh spells favorite with a U. Yeah. What? All that what kind of English? It's an, he's an Englishman, obviously. That's weird. Englishman. All right. That's weird. Uh, number three, Dracula from 1992. That has a U in it, too. When Dra- <laughs> Coincidence? I think not. <laughs> Dracula doesn't wear sunglasses. When Dracula makes himself over as a sexually harassing tourist in Victorian London, he wears a tiny pair of blue-tinted sunglasses. Oh, yeah, he does, yeah. I yeah. remember those, yeah. On his way to play Mina, no one else seems to have sunglasses or absinthe except him. Or absinthe except him. And he also goes to a porn movie and pets a wolf. Next to this, what's Keanu got? A mushroom cut? <laughs> That's disgusting. Let's stick to the topic. <laughs> Jesus, not topical <laughs> things. Whitenets. Unguents. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's that is a good point. So wait, Josh said a a, a mushroom cut. Yeah, that's all. Can and Kelly Wan thought that was a reference to whether or not he was circumcised. Yeah, yeah. that a good point. Jeez, Kelly Wan. Yeah. Thanks, Rabbi. Weird. Uh. Josh is number two. I don't know how to pronounce this. Ataranjuat. Yeah. Ataranjuat? Mm-hmm. All right. Stop it, Tom. 2001. It's an Inuit-made movie that was pretty big up here, featuring a cool pair of those bone sunglasses with a thin slit across. Oh, yeah. Go Snowblind, which proves that Kanye crossed the land bridge before anyone else during the last night page. <laughs> But yeah, I totally know what he's talking about. I can, yeah. Did you like that movie? Yeah. Uh, I don't know the movie, but I know this, this like uh, that take on sunglasses. I've either seen it, in, gosh, maybe I've seen it in a video game. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. That's a little embarrassing. Um, but I totally know what he's talking about. You guys already yeah, yeah. they look like um, like Venetian blinds or something that are open just right. a little bit. Look uh, like a little blast shield or something. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Jesus. No. no. <laughs> no. Not again. I think it's not everything in Star Wars. What? 
Uh, number one, Sunshine, 2007. Mm, I like good. the scene where Cyril mm. is – is it Cyril? Is that how you say it? Cyril? Uh, is sitting with his Aves on in that room that's just for freaking out in front of the sun, just seeing how much it can take. But it's weird too, right? Like – are we supposed to think that the people who designed the ship knew that he, that this was going to be a thing? Because otherwise, wouldn't it just be a TV room? Yeah. And also, well, yeah, you think the computer would do the sunglass part for you. Is AV, he says, uh, I like the scene where Cheryl is sitting with his Aves on, A-V-E-S. Is that a... Oh, like aviator glasses. Oh, Aves. Okay. Aves. All, right. All right. I didn't know if that was a Canadian term. Alright, Aves. Thanks, Tom. Not to be confused with the, the Ave Maria, uh, the classical, a piece of classical music. Uh, Runner-up, double team with Van Damme and Rodman. <laughs> the scene where they are undercover and Van Damme has a fake afro and little circular shades and I guess it's supposed to be hippie or some kind of skateboarding. He's line. undercover. Yeah. Alright, next we have... Um, He's not a uh, real actor. Somebody who signs his email, Randroid. He's got a cool name. I don't know if I'm supposed to read it, uh, but I'm going to go with Randroid since he signed it as Randroid. Uh, ahoy, hoy. <laughs> I like that name. Oh, Took good. He, he actually he... says his name in, in, the, in the opening line. Good. Wait, did he really write ahoy, hoy? He writes ahoy, hoy. Uh, okay. The Dread Pirate Ladnar Savad back again this week for another random one of 3 by 3 entry for sunglasses. So this oh, is Lad- that was the movie's title. <laughs> Lad- Ladnar Savad. Um, I apologize if I butchered your name, Lad- Ladnar. No, we love his name. Uh, by the way, I would rather next time, Ladnar, you address us with Ahoy Sexy. Ah, very nice. Please use that. That, that by the way, is a reference to Tom Chick's number one movie from 2013, Francis. Oh, yeah, Tom. i got to watch that. Yeah. Just a little, a little product placement from me. All right, so uh, what does Ladnar have uh, for Lots of stuff to choose from. Lots of stuff to choose from here, but I will skip the Terminator and go with my gut with the first thing that came to mind. Why is he wait? What's why is he skipping? What is it like a bad pick? Why? Because there was another reference to. I'm going to skip the obvious sci-fi. Why are people skipping the Terminator? It's ingenious. It is well, because if they live off the table, shouldn't Terminator also be off the table? Dingus didn't say that. You might be right, Kelly Wan, but Dingus I was didn't talking say that. about skipping the sci-fi if they live. Uh, yeah. In the, uh, in the 1987 vampire slash western slash 80s tastic aliens cast reunion near dark, mm. we get a great scene with Severin, played by Bill Paxton, as his small family unit of vampires enters a bar at night. Severin dances like a chicken for a bit, then wanders up to a balding bandana clad biker dude with sunglasses on and immediately begins to recount his escapades with the man's mama. The only response the balding, knife-wielding, mullet-wearing tough guy has is, I don't see nothing, man, and cool, man, before he gets his sunglasses stolen and his head squeezed like a blood juice box for Bill Baxton. The rest of the scene is full of sunglasses and violence and is a solid choice for supporting role for sunglasses in a movie. Does, I wonder if that movie still holds up. Catherine Bigelow, yeah. Uh, I would it say does no. Not. It absolutely does yeah. not. How about now? Now it does. <laughs> oh, but it just fell apart again. Sorry. Didn't, Damn it. Yeah. Uh, Very briefly held up uh, during July of 2014. Did Lost Boys hold up at the time? Oh, God. I can't imagine that Lost Boys holds up. 
Uh, Ladnar goes on to say, <laughs> probably do a nice list of just vampire-related sunglasses in movies. Parenthetically, <laughs> Lost Boys, The Hunger. Perhaps <laughs> others will include some choice bits. Honorable mentions go to Walter Sunglasses mm. in The Big Lebowski, Eric Bana wearing sunglasses without ears in Chopper, and Leon's signature specs in The Professional. Oh, nice. Very nice. Thanks for the great work, and keep it up. We're almost through summer. Randroid. Are we, though? I think we're just getting... See, he makes it... I've, I've been very happy with the summer. Yeah, I mean, Wait a minute. What? That's not what you said. I about. embrace summer. It's the worst summer ever. Bring it on. That's not what I said. Like, you know, the, the fact that I was so dreading Transformers and ended up liking yeah. it... Um, I just think you're yeah. weird. And I don't think summer's... Well, hey, come on. The, the rover is part of this summer. Nah, There's nah. no denying that. What do you mean, no? that could have come Are out you... any time. It just got here eventually but by summertime. It's a the rover is one aspect, Kelly it's Wan, summer. of summer 2014. You cannot deny that. I just want you to feast on that a little bit, Kelly Wan. I want you to I want you to now reflect on summer 2014 and listen to this song. Yeah, how's right. that taste? Now, you know what? Summer rules. Last summer was terrible. That's a good point. Thank you. All right. Sorry, I said that when I said. Everything. Okay. All of it. <laughs> what song is that? That's uh, Dwight Willie. Is that the song that Bumblebee played when everyone left the museum? <laughs> Don't think that I won't play the Imagine Dragons theme to Transformers Age of Extinction, Kelly Wand. Because I have it here on the hard drive. I will pipe that through this podcast right now. Don't think I won't do it. Megan Fox said Hitler was uh, more popular than Jesus Christ. And also that uh, Michael Bay was like Hitler. Uh, oh, there's also a Hitler joke in uh, Tammy. Oh, an off-screen one that was probably looped in afterwards via ADR. He's, yeah, that was very weird. organized. <laughs> we fired Megan Fox for her political... Uh, there's also one in Bridesmaids, actually. A Hitler joke? Yeah. Their execution's everything. Literally. <laughs> Next, we have Wolfgang Schuster. Ah. Yeah. yeah. My third favorite use of sunglasses in a movie is from Pitch Black. <laughs> I couldn't pick a specific scene, but I like how Riddick needs them just to be able to see without being blind. Ah, uh-huh, making fun of it. That's two for two, making fun of Vin Diesel. No. What? The he other needs, guy said. He needs them. Uh, Wolfgang Schuster's number two totally, totally validates Tom. My second favorite is from the first Terminator. <laughs> Not the stupid third movie with the Elton John glasses. That wasn't funny. (laughs) (laughs) About halfway through the first movie, the Terminator has his left eye damaged and cuts off the organic cover of the robotic eye. It then decides to use sunglasses to hide the robotic eye so that it can blend in as human. Wait, so when it's on, eye still doesn't work. Uh, Kelly, Wan, the Terminator is available for rental if you're unclear on how. I know the third one has a Criterion Collection copy, like uh, Deep Rising. You're thinking of Armageddon. I like the the cop glasses that Tom Tom talked about. But they're really they're like yeah they're they're liquid actually they're like the the knives and stabbing. That really is showing off. I can turn into anything, but I'm also going to turn into sunglasses just (laughs) because that's how little I think of you. Because silver. Uh, my favorite use of sunglasses in a movie is from Men in Black. Every time 
K puts on his glasses, I get this awful sense of foreboding. Just the idea that some nameless G-man could walk up and wipe your mind in the blink of an eye. Tell you, you want to know something really funny? Dingus saw Men in Black 3. I tried a little of it. It was too... Why do you have to remind me of that? I wiped my brain of that. (laughs) No one wants to see that, do they? You're right. Did that movie make a lot of money? Or did everyone just go, wait, really? Uh, they were all waiting for uh, uh, rest in peace force police force. R.A.P.D. Yeah. Yeah. The, those movies are successful because of the rapport between Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones and then the third one is not like he he does it with some other actor. And that would be Josh, Josh Brolin. Brolin. The son of the star of the car. Coincidence? I think this, The car is also sunglass colored. Mm. Just saying. A windshield, a tinted windshield, is like a sunglass for the car. Mm-hmm. Uh, our next one. <laughs> There's that tension. <laughs> the listeners pick up. On. Yes, our, ne- our next listener, Arthur Jovanangeli, says, uh, oh, he's got a quote. Uh, may I ask you why you felt little Tiffany deserved to die? Okay, number three. Men in Black, Willow Smith, and Tommy Lee Jones sport sunglasses as part of their MIB uniforms. The eyewear is necessary to pr- protect them from their own memory erasers, but also looks pretty good. Uh, his next quote, I bet these cops have good scamads. Ah, oh, nice one. I didn't even think of this. Uh, two, Blues Brothers. It's uh, under six miles to Chicago. Course, yeah. Full tank of back, gas, half pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. Nothing else needs to be said. That's a good one. I like that, Arthur. Uh, so, Arthur, uh, Joe Vanangeli's number one. Here's a quote from it. Then you'll see that it's not the spoon that bends. It is only yourself. Wait, the spoon <laughs> bends before you why, why is it. this? Why is this one worse than yours? <laughs> I wonder if Blues Brothers 2000 still holds up. <laughs> number one. His number one is The Matrix, of course. Because the major the sunglasses are strictly cosmetic. It's strictly because hey, sunglasses look cool. So do trench coats and popped up collars uh, and Carrie Ann Moss's leather pants. It's all yeah. it's all strictly aesthetic. It's the, it's the but whole, he says that. Just, to be yeah. fair, it's part of the narrative. Is just people imagine what right. looks cool, so they put on cool looking sunglasses. I mean, it's it's they think martial know, arts they're, are they're, cool, they're, so the computers also think martial arts is cool. Apparently. I mean, and they do look cool, to be fair. Yeah, but, but it is a little distracting from the metaphysics. They're like, oh, wait, this is a trippy story. Oh, they're wearing sunglasses. Um, so Arthur says about The Matrix, almost all of the major characters sport a pair of stylish sunglasses in this movie. My personal favorites are the ones worn by Morpheus. They seem to lack temples and are just simply resting on his nose. The costumes in The Matrix have a very memorable style, and the sunglasses are a huge part of this. Yeah. That my response to that would be, Arthur, do you think that's light hitting your eyes? <laughs> my response is, those are called temples. Um, you're going to like Arthur Joe Venangeli's runner-up, Tom. Here's a quote from it. <laughs> I think that's light hitting your eyes. My Oops. face is my warrant. Uh. <laughs> Arthur saw Transformers. The sunglasses are on his face, so in a way... Transformers Age of Extinction. Titus Welliver's sunglasses. I left this movie with a big, goofy grin on my face while quoting this line to anyone who would listen. 
Yeah, high five, Arthur. High five, Arthur. I like that. Someone did post, I don't know if this was in earnest, I meant to look it up, but the Titus Welliver is getting his own series? Do you guys know yeah, that's absolutely. true? Yeah, absolutely, it is true. It's an Amazon okay. series. What, does he play like a cop or something badass? Do you know? What'd you say? Kelly wanted in a TV series. It's a new character. You can make a whole oh, new character. I thought his face. Independent from any other characters. No, not from Transformers. The actor, Titus Welliver, is apparently badass enough that, as Dingus mentioned, it's an Amazon series. The executives are like, hey, let's put this guy in a TV show. Dingus, do you know what? Does he play a cop or does he play a federal agent or? Does he play an executive? Psych? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, the series is called, uh, gosh. Bosch, Bosch oh, yeah, as in Hieronymus. Uh, gosh, right. an idiot. Uh, but it's a, it's a place uh, thing, and it's based on the okay. of detective novels by some somebody or other. Yeah. Uh, okay. And the character is like Harry Bosch or Larry Bosch or something, but yeah. Ew, that's terrible, because you think Hieronymus, that's a, that's an appropriate first name but for Larry Bosch. It, must, it Bosch. must be Harry then. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> oh, oh, is it Harry Hieronymus? Is there a supernatural angle? I, have, I know nothing about it. I, the, okay. I know that as soon as the person posted that, I went and looked, and it's available. Like You can watch it on Amazon for free right now. I mean, the pilot, uh, or you could at least okay. at the time. Um, so I was kind of interested, because I think time because uh, I think, um, oh, geez, what's his name? Titus Welliver. Titus, Titus Welliver yeah, is yeah. really good. Uh, so I would, I'd sign on for a series that he's on. Uh, Kelly Wan Dingus wouldn't understand this, but you remember Titus Welliver, of course, from Lost, right? Uh, which one was he? He was one of the two brothers that Alice and Janney raised on the uh, island. There was J- Jacob and... The other you know, dumbass. Yeah, but do you remember the other actor who was opposite Titus Welliver? And they were like the sort of competing brothers? He looked... Well, he ends up playing a senior in a few Lutz. things, but I think most folks – he does have a little bit of a Lutz quality to him. But most folks know him as the uh, uh, abusive wife of – is her name Julie? The actress the, – I'm sorry, the abusive husband <laughs> like the first. Of, of, of Dexter's first girlfriend. Uh, Rita? In, in the oh, the ex-husband Dexter. that he gets with the – Yeah, yeah, the ex-husband that I oh, think yeah, he kills. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. killed in prison. Yeah. So he is kind as well of – are, are the kind of the two opposing forces on Lost, but I always thought that that Dexter actor was just way too weaselly looking, couldn't hold the candle to kind of how cool Titus Welliver looked. I kind of felt like he was out of his league trying to be opposite Titus Welliver as a badass, mythical foundation. Now he's so badass if he just says, if he invokes his face that you thought <laughs> Right. <laughs> weaselly. <laughs> Let's see the uh, guy from Dexter trying to use his face yeah. as a warrant. That's not going to get him very far. What about how Wahlberg doesn't say anything in response to that? Was like, there's nine million things. How, what, Kelly, what can That's you say true. to that? You know what? Your face is your warrant. I can't. I fold. It's too rich for my blood. You brought your face, Buck. All right. So, uh, high five. I'm glad to know that we're not the only ones. Kelly, Wan, you can't participate in this high five. Uh, me and Dingus and Arthur. Uh, high five. I'm glad to know we're not the only ones who were a little bit giddy about how much we liked. Giddy? You guys were giddy about it? I was I was giddy. I mean, it was a little silly, and I didn't mind. And I yeah, You're dumb. I agree. <laughs> Wait, but pain and gain is not giddy. Not, not giddy about pain and gain. Now, even though The Rock was in it, The Rock was great. Pain and Gain helped me realize that Dwayne Johnson is a better actor than Harrison Ford, and for that, I will always be indebted to it. But I'm not crazy about the the movie as a whole. Is The Rock going to sub for Harrison Ford on episode seven now that? Now that Harrison Ford is too frail to shoot movies, unlike The Rock, who's keeping in fine physical shape, as we'll find out when we see Hercules this summer. 
Also, a summer 2014 movie. No, I don't want to see that thing. Oh, too bad. It's you have to. I, can't wait the, I cannot wait for the synopsis. How did you get? I'm just going to do the same Hercules opsis that I did last time. <laughs> Colin Lutz and Dwayne Johnson. Come on. There's no way that Dwayne Johnson's Hercules will not be markedly different from Colin Lutz. When he Lutz's comes out of water, he's not as happy. <laughs> Dwayne Johnson does not dog paddle when he, he swims. Unlike he didn't Lutz. even need to dog paddle. He was lying down. <laughs> um, you know, it's a tough room. Dueling Herculeses. It's a tough creek. Remember when clones, like every movie is about clones? Uh, I remember two of them. One of them was The Island. What was the other uh, one? Multiplicity? Wasn't there a Shroud of Turin movie about a clone? You're a Five. Shroud of Turin. Ooh, good comeback. Here we are. Still doing the Botanic podcast. <laughs> okay, Nick D. Uh, Nick D, number three, <laughs> is Cool Hand Luke. It's uh, a good one. Jeez. It's yeah. a good one. I agree with everyone. Is there a more iconic use of mirrored sunglasses than the scene where the camera pushes in tight on the work gang boss? So walking boss, Nick. Uh, I think not. They were the first ones too. They were the first tough sunglasses in movies, right? Uh, and but the dude, I mean, he just yeah. I mean, his face really was a, a soap opera actor, I think. Uh, number two, Doctor Strangelove. For some reason, Peter Sellers as the, as the titular character wears sunglasses in the war room. But for whatever reason, it makes perfect sense okay. for that character and makes him all the more hilarious. And they are like light-tinted sunglasses like the ones that you were talking about. Because yeah. you, you still see his yeah, eyes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, okay, this is good. All right, Nick. Nice. Number one, airplane. Robert. Oh, I thought, yeah, this is one of my alternates. That's a great one. And I almost picked him as my number one just because it was the first one I thought of, but that's always a bad reason to pick something as a number one, probably. It's always better to go with Weekend. It's so funny. I know. Because well, I didn't really – I don't know why that's so funny. But Rob, I remember seeing it. Robert Stack dramatically removes his sunglasses to reveal another pair of sunglasses. <laughs> it's so weird. It's such a weird joke to even think of. It, it's it not even a perfect. joke, but it's not even like a cliche of anything. It's just so great. No, I know. It's, yeah, and he does it perfectly. He <laughs> says all that shit right before it. Why is that movie so good? It's so simple, so stupid, so great. Cheers, Nick. Uh, well done. Yeah. I didn't even think of that. I all. did. It was a good one. Um, we have – is it Leah Miller or Lee Miller? What do you think? It's uh, Lee Miller. What did you say? It's Leah Miller. Leah Miller. Uh, sunglasses. This is the first time I've been caught up to the podcast and had a clear number one as soon as I heard the 3x3 three three topic. So we'll see whether or not I'm too late. Number three. Oh, no. I feel terrible. In the beginning of Thelma and Louise, where they're just starting out on their adventure, riding in that convertible, both wearing sunglasses, talking about what Gina Davis's husband doesn't know. The sunglasses invoke road trips vacations, and the ways we hide from others, establishing the themes that the movie will deconstruct. Huh. Uh, so I, I agree that the girl, that the women uh, driving in the cars, wearing the sunglasses, and the gradual way they sort of change their costumes as they move on, taking a hat here and other things from other people there, and the sunglasses they wear is good, but the, the cop sunglass thing didn't work for me because the movie doesn't. But It's like the only time girls get sunglasses duty in a movie, Thelma Louise. Like, none of the other picks were girls, right? Not so far, I don't think. We didn't pick any girls, did we? Right. Um, 
Except for number ready. Uh, yeah, good point. Uh, number two, Men in Black. If you're going to eliminate They Live, then Men in Black, this is the other obvious sci-fi yeah. epic where the sunglasses serve as an interesting function within the plot. As a result, the entire movie is an exercise in funding different, finding different ways to punctuate a scene by putting on or removing sunglasses. And number one, it's 106 miles to Chicago. We've got a full tank of gas, half pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Okay. Blues Brothers. That should be all I have to say. Very well done. Yes. Perfect. Uh, next, we have Scott Andrews. Scott Andrews writes, two pairs of sunglasses, which are more than just sunglasses. Quote, if I let you know where I'm going, I won't be on holiday. Ethan Hunt receives a self-destructing sunglasses message <laughs> while on a rock climbing holiday in the opening scene of Mission <laughs> Impossible 2. The Empire Strikes Back installment of the Mission Impossible movies. Second pick are the ruby quartz sunglasses Cyclops <laughs> uses to contain his optic blasts. Yeah. Favorite scene, another you and favorite, is Wolverine and Storm finding Jean Grey, that's good, and Cyclops glasses, but no Cyclops, that's bad, at Alkali Lake near the start of X-Men colon The Last Stand. So you wouldn't uh, leave without them. We have two more. Uh, Dave Perkins. Uh, this is probably too late. It's not Dave. I'm counting on you guys being slackers like you are at times, like I am right now. Best sunglasses caper ever, of course, is Midnight Run. I'm <laughs> 200% sure that Christian covered this in detail, so I won't. Well done, Dave. You know me very well. Uh, there's a cool moment in Casino Royale where James Bond is trailing a bad guy who uses a sunglasses kiosk at an airport to surreptitiously glance behind him and see if Bond and to see Bond and subsequently get away. And the sunglasses in Men in Black protect them from their flashy memory magic stick. I thought that was a pretty cool idea. Michelle liked in Blues Brothers when Jake took off his sunglasses to plead for his life in the sewer to Carrie Fisher and her automatic rifle. Oh my God, that's Carrie Fisher. Yeah, yeah, she's super cute in that movie. Dave and Michelle. You know, that's a you know that's not a bad counter to what Tom was talking about. Johnny Depp. That right, doesn't right. work in Fear and Loathing, or that didn't get included in Fear and Loathing, because that's very effective when he does that. It, I, I like that yeah. moment. It's a good choice, Michelle. Uh, and finally, we have Mark. Uh, wait, hold on. Uh, yeah, we have Mark. Hey guys. I may have missed the cutoff, but if not, here's just one. In 1984's Repo Man, the <laughs> driver of the much-desired Malibu... Ah, Fox Harris. Yeah, I'm glad someone good. mentioned this. <laughs> ...wears a pair of sunglasses. He seems oblivious to the fact... Well, not a pair. Go on. He seems oblivious to the fact that the glasses are missing a lens. It quickly becomes apparent that not... That that's not... I'm sorry. It quickly becomes apparent that's not all that's wrong with him. Thanks for the FUD podcast every week. Cheers, Mark. P.S. Regarding your appliance discussion and Christian's trouble with egg boiling, two items, and then he sends us some pictures. Sorry about that. Shouldn't uh, yeah, Fox. That's a, that's an actor named Fox Harrison. I don't know what became of him, but he was a uh, he was the not the villain really, but he was certainly the, the 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 conveyor of the MacGuffin or whatever in, in Repo Man. Yeah, and they, there was. I don't think they ever explain why his glasses have a lens popped out. You know, he's wearing half a pair of he's sunglasses. He's the crazy one. Yeah, and he is crazy. And, What's his um, name? Crazy like a fox. The actor's name is Fox Harris. The character's name was uh, I don't remember what the character's fox name was. Fox Harris. Yeah, because it's a cool name. Yeah. And I don't think he ever did anything after. I mean, I think he was in some like cheesy monster movies, but 
I, maybe he died or something, but I don't think he did anything after, you know, a few years after Repo Man. Um, but yeah, he's got that line about, um, you know, the average person uh, absorbs the equivalent and radiation of 50 x-rays a year. Um, and you can totally stand 50 x-rays a year and you ought to have them too. Like he's just got <laughs> weird lines like that that I, I remember. That. That's why he wears the one sentence. Well, you know, you know, it's in the trunk of his. Uh, what was the card? I forgot if he said oh. email. He said he said a Malibu. A, a Chevy Malibu. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's in the trunk of the Malibu. Just yeah. in the Malibu. All right. So, uh, runners up, gentlemen. Uh, well, enemy, which uh, Silver Street. Kelly one. Yep. Oh God, uh, Kelly Wand, you would. See, they have to get past the cops, so. Uh... So shoe, shoe polish, polish sunglasses, a little transistor yeah. radio, and a, a Rastafarian See, something for everybody. Hilarious, hilarious it's race humor. Oh, that that uh, that Gene Wilder is so wacky. See? Richard Pryor. See, you didn't too. like Blazing Saddles either. <laughs> you don't get race. You only like movies about women and not movies about black people. <laughs> um, I had Terminator as a runner-up. I gotta say. Uh-huh. Um Also, I liked his sunglasses in Drive. Do you guys remember those? Oh, yeah. I just liked the way he wore sunglasses. And you figure that character would be... Well, I guess not. Never mind. I was going to say they would always be functional or he wouldn't wear them. But I don't know if he wears the scorpion jacket. That's functional. Is it? To keep him warm? Or to tell No, no. It's functional for the parable about the scorpion. <laughs> no, I mean, functional as far as the character's concerned. It's also narratively. Well, yeah, functional. I get the narrative part of it. <laughs> and doesn't Roy Scheider have some cool sunglasses on the beach in Jaws? Jaws? Mm, I know he wears cool. like he wears prescription glasses. Oh, um, all right. I did, I wanted to watch glasses? it again because I just remember him sitting on the beach wearing sunglasses when people are coming up to talk to him. But maybe they're just regular glasses. I couldn't remember. What if Quint had worn sunglasses? Mm, no, see, yeah. back in the seventies, yeah. tough guy like Robert Shaw. No, he doesn't right. need sunglasses. Please, his eyes are his warrant. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. fishing license. I mean. All right, so Kelly wanted is your three by How three. How exciting! Next what do you got? Are for you us? excited? That's not really the word I would use, but dread, um, filled with dread, judge dread. I definitely, I do have a certain type of anticipation. Is it just you got a pee? Tell you that much. That's not what anticipation oh. means. Is that trepidation? That's it. Remember the scene in uh, in uh, is it in Boogie Nights yes. where where uh, Heather Graham is like squirming around and, and she's it's sort of roller skates and Juliet Moore's like, "What's the matter with you down there?" And she's just like, "Oh, I got to pee." She's <laughs> really cute. I think. Am I remembering that scene correctly? Mm, I remember her being cute in Boogie Nights. <laughs> Heather Graham. King. As Roller Girl? Oh, that was fun. Thank you. Jeez, you're good, Kelly Wand. All right, Kelly Wand, so what is your 3 by 3 next week? Is it favorite roller skates? Because if so, I feel like I've scooped you. Okay. (laughs) Uh, By the way, real quick, speaking of favorite roller skates, I started uh, the the trailer for Sex Tape, which is starring Cameron Diaz and Jason Segel, came on. And I started watching it thinking, I'm not going to watch this. And then there's the little scene where Cameron Diaz (laughs) comes out on roller skates and like in her panties and these tight T-shirt. And she's going to seduce Jason Segel. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe I should close my eyes. This could be funny. I'm going to close my eyes and not watch the rest of this trailer. And then I closed my eyes thinking I maybe want to see Sex Tape. But then every now and then I was peeking. And it got to the scene where Jason Segel had to like 
resuscitate a mm-hmm. dog that he thought had died, and the dog comes alive and jumps on his face, and he's fighting it. And I was like, nah, I don't. I and don't also, it's a Siri joke. Right, right, Siri. Siri, how do you resuscitate a dead dog? Right. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, how do you resuscitate yeah. a dead dog? That's fantastic. <laughs> so I, I don't think, don't, yeah. I, don't, so don't Cameron me. Decent, I, I'm just going to blow in your mouth. So you're doing a Tammy joke, but Cameron Diaz in Roller Skates briefly made me want to see Sex Tape. But then Jason Segel wrestling with a, the dog that he thought is dead made the me want to see it. The line that made me not want to see it is when she goes, everybody saw it. And I'm like, no one, no one watches a sex tape. Like, oh, my God, my neighbors made a sex tape. I'll, I better check that out. Like, it wouldn't be all over. All right, Kelly Wanda, I invite you to tell Kim Kardashian that. <laughs> I don't want to see it. Fuck her. I don't want to see her sex tape. Well, what do you want to see from the listeners and your fellow podcasters, Kelly Wan, next week for a three by three? I'd watch a Danny DeVito, Jessica Beale sex tape. I'd watch Danny DeVito, Rhea Perlman sex tape. I'd watch a Danny I, DeVito, Arnold Schwarzenegger sex tape. Dingus went too far. Way too far, Dingus. Dingus what about Stephen Baldwin? Done. <laughs> and Marcia Straussman from Welcome Back Hotter. But now. You had us at Baldwin. My number three. Oh, wait. Um, my number three Baldwin would probably be um, the one from Fair Game. I forget his name. Come on, it's clearly it's clearly Billy, Stephen, Alec. Who's the homicide? Reverse one. Stephen. Stephen. So next week's three by three topic Actually, is that's Adam. Adam is homicide, I think. But not Wait, the Adam Baldwin. That's but he's not related to any of the other Baldwins. Yeah, it's like Elizabeth Olsen. And- oh, there's an Adam Baldwin who's not Adam Baldwin. What are you talking about? There is? One of the one of the actual Baldwin brothers is named Adam, but he's not the Adam Baldwin from Firefly? That's the Firefly guy. Right, right. That's a different Adam Baldwin. There's an Adam Baldwin who's a Baldwin. There's two Adam Baldwins, yeah. and one of them is related to Alec Baldwin? Sure, why not? I did not know that. I think I said in a podcast that I thought the chick Jennifer Carpenter on Dexter was the daughter of John Carpenter. She is. Now, yep. yep. you backed me up last time, and I don't think that's true. I think I was speaking persiflage. But now you're saying I was. Wow, good use of that word, by the way. Wow. Very nicely done. It only applies to Jennifer Carpenter. Uh, Jennifer Carpenter, uh, I'm going to click on see full bio right here. Uh, her mother is Catherine Mitchell, and her father is Robert Carpenter, a.k.a. John. <laughs> All right, so she's not related to John Carpenter. So, Kelly Wan, if you ever thought that, you I were I feel foolish. like such an idiot right now. Ke- Kelly Wan, I thought of you. So there's a uh, there's a, a documentary about the making of, of, uh, of Dawn of the Dead, or uh, Night of the Living Dead, um, you know, Romero's classic zombie movie. And there's a documentary about it where they talk to the folks involved and they talk to George Romero uh, and they, they talk to even uh, like film critic Elvis Mitchell. They have a guy I really love named Larry Fessenden talk about like what it means to him. Uh, and they break down. It's almost like a director's commentary and they're showing clips. They, they even have a thing, by the way, this, this documentary is called Birth of the Living Dead. They even have a thing where some idiot teacher, I don't know where this is, but I wanted to send an angry letter to the school board. He's showing his class of, and Dingus, you would understand this, the kids must be your son's age. They've got to be like like eight or nine-year-olds. He's showing his class Night of the Living uh. Dead, and he's teaching them about zombies and you know the history of horror movies. And it shows footage of these kids watching the scenes of the zombies eating you know, flesh and the, the little girl stabbing her mother like the and the little kids yeah. are reacting. 
and then they're interviewing the kids, and I'm like, oh my god, what an what an ass. I mean, I, I really thought that it was grossly inappropriate, and I what couldn't class tell. Was that? What, <laughs> I don't know. It was just this guy. It was just some guy in a school system, school system showing a bunch of kids this this classic zombie movie, and he he's he's talking about how it's classic cinema, and he wants to expose these kids to it. And I, I just wanted to kick this idiot. I couldn't believe this because um, there's a lot of really grim stuff in that movie, and I think it's grossly inappropriate for kids that age. And then the kids are all talking about how it's kind of cool. But I know some of them. I mean, that's just inappropriate stuff to show these kids. Yeah. I, I thought I'd start off eight year olds on open water. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, I thought I, I don't think I'd ever seen George Romero before. And I have kind of acquired for him, you know, I love what he did with some of his early movies and even some of his. Um, he did a movie called, I think, Monkey yeah. Shines. There's a movie called Martin, that yeah. I think is him. Uh, there's this movie with Tom Savini called. Um, uh, nights of it's about these guys that run around they're they're bikers and they're recreating uh, oh, yeah, King yeah, Arthur's letters. Yeah, yeah, that might be right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's George yeah. Merrill. So Steve at any rate, but he's it. most he's, <laughs> as a oh, redneck. God, oh that's right. I, I do think I remember yeah. that. Yeah. Uh but George Romero has most recently done some really just terrible out of touch zombie things like Diary of the Dead. I forget. There's one that's set on island where a lady, a zombie lady, rides around on a zombie horse. He's just done some terrible stuff yeah, lately. So I've lost a lot of goodwill for him. But watching this movie and seeing George Romero interviewed, I had no idea what he looks like. But Kelly Wand, when you get to be 50, 60, 70 years old, you are going to look exactly like George Romero. George Romero looks like you as a super old dude. And what's more, George Romero has this amazing – it's just this infectious, Get delightful, imp- impish glee. The guy just has this grin and this disregard and this twinkle in his eye that is so incredibly lovable. I had that lovable. when I was a fetus. That kind of reminded me of you. So, I think I look rate, like the dude this- in the beginning and I have living dead. He's saying, they're coming for you, Barbara. That's how I feel like I look. You look like- that guy looks like Dennis Christopher. No, you do not look uh, like Father Dennis Mulcahy. Christopher. You, look, you should be you so like lucky. Oh. oh, we saw something else with a zombie riding a zombie horse. Uh, it's called uh, Game Michael of Fass- Thrones. Probably. Uh, Game of Thrones, duh. Oh, yeah. uh, Michael Fassbender summons zombie horses in a Joel Schumacher movie called – the name escapes me. But uh, it's – no, it's, it's, a, it's a zombie. It's a movie <laughs> the name escapes where, me is not a bad title. Yeah, it's like Daniel Daniel Baldwin, not Adam. I'm an idiot. Sorry. Oh, see, I thought so. I knew there was an Adam Baldwin. I didn't know. And I I thought, because I think a lot of people think, oh, he's one of the Baldwin brothers, and he's not. His name escapes me, but he said his face was his warrant. Can't remember. Uh, But anyway, there's a Joel Schumacher movie where a bunch of Iraqi war vets get besieged in a barn by a warlock played by Michael Fassbender who raises zombie horses to lay siege to the barn. Everything I've just said is 100% true. What happens in the None movie version? Is, yep. <laughs> Zombie horses are terrifying. Well, it sometimes happens. If you're it's dealing with a warlock, especially played by Michael Fassbender, what are they do? It make undead hay? I forget how they get out of it. I think they just shoot the zombie They head horses. shoot horses, don't they? They head shoot zombie it's horses, called- don't they? It's called Blood Creek, by the way, and one of the Iraqi war vets is played by the dinkus heartthrob, Henry Cavill. <laughs> He's no Anson Mount. I'll, uh, you can say that again. He's no Anson Mount. Tell me about it. He's no Anson Mount. 
You can say that again. He's no Anson Mount. Tell me about it. No Anson Mount. You can say that again. He's no Anson Mount. Tell me about it. Which one is Ashton? Ah, Kelly failed. I mean, Kelly, a dingus pulled back first from this recreation of the interminable tedium of the movie they came together oh that no one on listening has seen nor i but keep going (laughs) i think a listener did recommend it i think a listener recommended it and furthermore punked me into believing that michael shannon was in it Mm. yeah all right anyway i'm sorry i've uh that's enough george romero but anyway (laughs) kelly wand when you're 70 years old i think you can go to parties as a george romero in person i think i look like most people actually so it's not that exciting but he's from he's from pennsylvania he's very from pennsylvania yeah that was so we've talked before i think i've mentioned before how a lot of times in movies uh because you can't just show any movie you can't show characters watching anything on tv you're gonna have to license stuff so a disproportionate number of times you will see people in a movie watching Night of the Living uh, Dead. Or Evil this Dead. led me to wonder this no uh, not Evil Dead. Uh you have to license that. This this led me to wonder well is it public domain? It must be yeah, cuz it it's is. in all these like little cheap indie movies. It is and Romero says and I can't believe this is true. So when they shot Night of the Living Dead it was originally called Night of the Flesh Eaters and at some point when they finally got distribution for it the distributor convinced them to change the title to Night of the Living Dead. So they had previously had a title screen that said Night of the Flesh Eaters, and they put the little copyright symbol. When they put up the new title screen that said Night of the Living Dead, they neglected to put up the copyright symbol. And what George Romero says in this documentary is because of that, it became public domain, and that they lost whatever. But I can't help but think... Well, that's why they they remade it. What kind of crappy lawyer did they get... To, to not say, hey, this is still copyrighted. We just forgot to if put they up even the had a lawyer. That's when they had no money and they had no idea they were making a hit movie. So that is true, but uh, but but the fact that you know couldn't they get a lawyer to say, oh, we forgot to put up the C? I mean, is that really what happened? Yeah, because they forgot to put up that little yeah. mark. I've heard the story too. It's wretched. But then he Lord. made it back on on Dawn of the Dead, didn't he? Well, he may, I mean, he became a successful director, but, you know, Night of the Living Dead, it, it exploded. Like, it, it was originally running, running in these grindhouse theaters in New York, yeah. and it got terrible reviews. But eventually it got picked up in other countries, and it got picked up at drive throughs it was, it was hugely successful. And to hear George Romero talk about it, and I believe this because apparently of this lack of whatever legal claim they had to it, uh, you know, he never made any money yeah. of it. Happens all the time. That people forget well, just weird shit or things get made. Like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer was supposed to be like this. Like, like, oh yeah, John. Knott. Yeah, and so he wrote like this serious movie that I think even in its final version of the script was way different than even what they wound up shooting. I don't know. It's a creative process. You get, there's lawyers involved. It's a miracle anything gets made. I know, right? John Naughton doesn't disown Henry. Portrait no, no. Of a I'm just killer, saying. I didn't mean it oh. like that. I just meant like. The production and pre-production process is always so like every movie's different. And '68, Reckon Romero, like no one knew. Like think of the state of horror back then. Like, oh yeah, and that's one of the really cool things about watching pre- pre-exorcist. Uh, pre-exorcist. Pre-exorcist, and it's when horror movie was horror movies were all yeah. these little campy like uh, Vincent Price. No things. zombie movies even yeah. yet. Like now it's now you yeah. it, now you can't. Turn it's, zombie movies are more copious now than zombies. Mm, it's well, become a metaphor, Tom. That's a bit of hyperbole, Kelly Wand. 
Anyway, Kelly Wand, what is the three by three for next week that the listeners will be shambling towards us with their picks? Well, they'll have to use their brains for this one. Three best uses of math. Or meth. Your choice. You're welcome. (laughs) In honor of summer vacation. Uh, stonily silent and not the good way. I'm just wondering if... uh, Zipra does not count, obviously. um, If amounts of money are off the table. No, they're not. They're way on the table. Well, they are, because we we did those before. We've had sums of money. But no, you know what? I can kind of... Unlike a lot of your picks, Kelly Wan, where I'm like, what the heck is he thinking? I, I got this. I, I think I know where you're going. I'm, I'm down with this. I one. felt I owed you because a lot of my last few talks have been kind of depressing. I think. No, please. You can always do whatever you want. The 3 by 3 Kelly Wan, is your opportunity to take the podcast wherever you want it to go. And if you want to do three favorite old ladies flipping someone the bird in a car driven by John Houseman, you can do that. <laughs> There's only two movies like that. Go on. <laughs> All right, so three best uses of math, Kelly Wand. You know what? I'm actually oh. going to go on record right now, Kelly Wand, is saying I yeah, like it. I do, too. I do. got one right now. Yeah. Uh, if you have picks, you listeners, we would love for you to send them in. Send in your picks. And speaking of math, you don't always have to send in three. You're welcome to send in three if you like. If you just have one. Fire it off to us in an email. Send it to 3 by 3 at quarter to 3com That's the number 3, the letter X, the number 3, at sign, and then you spell out quarter to 3com Kelly Wand will read them gleefully on the air with the, same, with the same impish glee that George Romero uses to talk about his career. Hmm. Before he got burned out to a cinder, like another... That's another thing, by the way. I love that in this documentary, because I got the sense when he's making these crappy Latter-day – like one of them's found footage. It's horrible. Yeah. And he's got this, this really clunky commentary about social media, and I think he's a little out of touch with it. And So I got the sense that he's got to be this bitter, burned-out old man making crappy zombie movies, unable to capture the glory of his earlier career. But no, he's just – he's. I'm telling you, it's impish glee. I loved seeing that in him. Um but uh, yeah, so at any rate, Kelly Wand will read your picks on the air. Kelly Wand, you you were gonna uh, offer a caveat. Well, just don't. I don't like reading aloud in general, so try and keep it short, or don't write at all, or restrict it to three, or just keep, use the math in the movie. Every, everything Kelly Wand has just said, I'm gonna strike down. I'm gonna strike from the record, Kelly. You know, I might just bleep it out. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, send in what you like. I love when Kelly Wand has to read stuff that he's I hate you with. too. I'm with you. Tell My us. voice is irritating, and I just, you guys fucking punish me. No, your voice is not irritating. It's mm, malicious. I have to listen to it. I have to listen to it all day, every day. It's irritating. You, you don't listen to the podcast, so you don't have to listen to it. Nah, even just saying right, this fine. is irritating me. But listening to it for us, <laughs> no, it's, it's like music. No. Kelly Wan, because we like the music of your voice, why don't you tell the listeners what movie we're seeing? Oh, I'm very excited. We're seeing Dawn of the Rise of the Beginning of the Planet of the Apes. You got all the words in there, and you got some extra ones as well. You, listeners, only have to see Dawn, Dawn? of the Planet of the Apes. This is, you know who's directing this no. movie, Kelly Wand? Different? A little fellow named, little fellow named Matt Reeves. Oh. He gave us Let Me In, and he gave us... Uh, 
I mean, Cloverfield, I, I kind of feel like he basically just set up the camera. Cloverfield's more of a J.J. Abrams joint in a sense. Uh, but but uh, Matt Reeves, if, if you want to get a sense for how Matt Reeves really functions as a director, watch Let the Right One In and then see Matt Reeves' take on it with Let Me. Ugh. Who directed the first <laughs> Apes movie? That God, I was afraid you were going to ask that. Dinkus, who was that? I have no idea. Because it was really good. Whoever it was, yeah. he did a great yeah. job. Um, you saw it. You actually no, saw I it. No, I didn't, Kelly but Wong. I remember everyone said what you said. Like, dude, so good. Uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes was directed by, it was, of course, starred James Franco in a super hot Indian um, veterinarian, uh, Rupert Wyatt. What do we know him from? Why didn't he get to do the second one? I don't know. Oh, Rupert Wyatt hasn't done a lot. He uh, did a movie with Brian Cox called The Escapist, which and Andy Serkis as well, by the way, which I don't think is very good. Is it based on um, Cavalier and Clay? It's not with Andy Serkis. Where did it come from? Uh, at any rate, no, I don't think it's based on that. Um, mm, Remember when I thought one. Christopher Nolan directed Now You See Me? Because <laughs> Michael Caine did it. It's about magicians. <laughs> Just like the other ones. So, uh, see Rise of the Planet uh, of the Apes, directed by Matt Reeves, and then join us for the podcast for that. Or no, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and join us for that podcast next week. Send us your pick for uh, best uses of math in a movie. We would love to read those on the air. Um, or pick, singular, yeah. I am Tom Chick. I have been joined by uh, Christian Mukronsky. It's Christian Murawski. And uh, Kelly Warren. Uh, what did I say it was? Uh... Ugh, Tammy. Oh, yeah. So Tammy was like a Thelma and Louise spinoff movie with Sarandon playing the same character. I guess she survived. You're more, you're more badass than I ever thought. <laughs> that can't be true.